Magazines and Monsters, episode 25, Silver Bullet from 1985. It began in May. And every month after that, whenever the moon was full, it happened again. And again. What was that? It's over there. Who pointed that at me? Nobody knew who or what was responsible. Come on. They only knew it had to be stopped. Now, from the master of mystery and suspense. Stephen King's Silver Bullet. Silver Bullet, the last glimmering hope. Hey everybody, Billy D, aka Doc Strange, back with another episode of the show. This time, uh, I'm joined by two awesome guests. Uh, first up is my podcasting partner, uh, Herman Lowe. How are you, buddy? Hey, Billy. No, I'm having a howlingly good time you know, being <laughs> here again on Magazines and Monsters. And this time, we're really emphasizing the monsters part of this magazine mm. and monster show. So yeah, I'm glad to be back. Awesome. I hope you're wearing your priest collar in honor of one of the uh, people in the film here. Oh, I should have introduced myself as the uh, the Reverend Herman Lowe. <laughs> <laughs> Younger brother of Lester. <laughs> mm-hmm, for sure. Um, all right. And then uh, my second guest is returning to the show. He just had a little bit of a brief uh, uh, hiatus here. He was just on right before Halloween. Uh, Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water Network. How are you, Ryan? Hello. <laughs> I need to get I, my silver it's... bullets. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's uh, always fun podcasting with you guys. Never a never a chore. Always a, a fun thing. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about you know all the werewolf references here. A silver bullet from 1985. You know, as a Stephen King vehicle. You know, originating from a novella, novelette, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, this is one that I don't know when the first time was I even saw this because I was only 10 when this came out and I was not going to see something like this when I was 10. So maybe a television late 80s, early 90s. That probably would have been my experience with it. So what about you, Ryan? It was on television probably around the same time would have been in the 90s, maybe mid. Um, and I just remember uh Gosh, well, I, I I turned it on in the middle of it. I think like it was like right in the middle. It's right. We'll we'll come to it. I turned it on during the scene when everybody is out in the woods in the fog covered woods, and they're all mm. like, the, the lynch mob is hunting for this thing, and they yes. just start getting picked off one by one. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? And then I, I don't know whoever was watching it, whether it was like one of my parents or something. Like, oh, it's Silver Bullet. It's a horror movie, and it like it had a commercial, so it was highly edited. Um, but then started watching it from there, and just a few quick little things, quick little moments in the the movie, really kind of cemented it for me as this kind of a classic 
of the genre of the way a child, a seemingly defenseless child, is able to fend off this monster in a kind of cool, creative way that I had never would have expected. And then also the reveal of who the werewolf was, um, the way that kind of sneaks into the story. I was like, wow, that was really interesting. So yeah, this was always a movie that like kind of loomed in my mind as like this was a cool thing that even though the movie itself is problematic, I was like, this just has some natural elements to the story that I always thought were kind of brilliant and really creative. Herm? Yeah, well, this is a strange one for me to give an introduction, my personal, you know, experience with it, because I this is a complete blank for me. I cannot remember when I saw it first or how I saw it. I just remember it was, you know, ever present during my childhood as a kid watching horror movies. So there were your your go to horror movies that you would rewatch endlessly. You know, for me, it was like maybe Mm -hmm. Friday Night, The Lost Boys and even earlier, some Hammer classics, if I could get my hands on them. And this was one of those movies I remember because you you could never tire of it. I would, you know, maybe on a rainy Sunday afternoon or something. And if my mom and dad were out and I was in the car with them, we would stop by the video store and I would go and rent some stuff. And I would maybe rent three or four movies. And this was sometimes one of them. You know, I would watch them endlessly. Uh, and this, you know, was a great movie because of that. And also because it's very similar to the town that I grew up in. Uh, mm-hmm. Just with a little bit of South African flavor, but obviously <laughs> very small town and the people I could see some, you know, um, people that I knew in the film, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for similes of them. But I can't remember exactly if I watched it on TV first. I almost doubt that because they didn't screen this. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why they didn't screen very horror-esque stuff uh, too late at night. Um and then, uh, you know, we must have rented it somehow, but I can't remember when. I just remember that at one point in time it was on TV and then I taped it, you know, on the VCR, recorded it. And then I had my own copy and then I never went to the video store again to rent it. But, um, yeah, I, I was into werewolf movies in the beginning there after seeing an American werewolf in London. And then I got the howling and, of course, you know, um, a couple of other movies and eventually, you know, watched the Wolfman, the original somehow <laughs> i don't know how i watched it but i think that was that one was actually on tv because it's not as gory or gross as the 80s werewolf movies but eventually this one became my favorite for a while until american werewolf in london eclipsed it again you know so mm. yeah loved it loved uh, silver bullet but i can't give you guys an origin story about it because it's a total <laughs> blank for me where when i saw it first Mm, well, hey, speaking of American World in London, uh, plug uh, Rob Kelly's uh, Fire and Water show, the uh, film and water. He uh, just went over that film. He did like a, uh, a commentary, you know, like a commentary. <laughs> yeah, with a guest. Yeah, it was really great. good, too. I haven't seen that movie in a very long time, so I need to do a rewatch on that one. But yeah, another good werewolf movie for sure. But um, all right. So before we get into like the, the cast and the production side, I just wanted to make a note that we're going to go over the story, you know, the the novella, novelette, whatever you want to call it, uh, after we talk about the movie a little bit, because, you know, both of you guys are huge Stephen King fans, and I haven't actually read that yet. So we're going to talk about that a little bit at the end there, after, you know, we talk about the film, like some of the differences, and you know, your likes and dislikes of that as well. So just wanted to throw that out there, just uh, in case anybody's like, why didn't you talk about that first? We're going to talk about that second. So, <laughs> but uh, I didn't, still something really struck me about this movie when I looked at the credits, though. The director of this film, I had never heard of this guy. Is it Daniel Atias? Atias? And I had never heard of this guy, but his list of credits, especially television stuff, is huge. Yeah, we'll let Ryan go first here. I know, Ryan, do you know this guy? 
Uh, no, uh, I don't. I'm just kind of like looking through his, scrolling through his. Uh, it seems like he's kind of a journeyman director. He goes to a lot of projects, but yeah, he's yeah. definitely. I mean, he's he's got a huge number of credits, so he's he's in. Yeah. yeah, I mean, television is like Sopranos. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, a show that I've never seen, but people keep telling me I need to watch it. The Wire, mm-hmm. uh, on, on Entourage. Like, he's got all this huge catalog of television stuff. And I was like, wow, and I've never heard this guy's name. And I'm like, why has this, why is this guy's name not out there more? Obviously, he's a super talented guy. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, Ryan, to interrupt there. I'm not really, this movie's not about Daniel Latias for me. It's all about Don Coscarelli. Because he was the director that was on the movie for for the first couple of months. Initially. And then he, got, he left. Yeah, he left because of problems with the werewolf design and because of <laughs> Dino De Laurentiis not liking him much. I mean, I recently read uh, True Indie, the life and death in filmmaking book, uh, which Don Coscarelli put out. It's sort of a semi-autobiography of his career as an indie filmmaker. And he had this huge chapter devoted to, you know, the silver bullet debacle that he was... Uh, on you know yeah he didn't have a lot of creative control indie filmmakers obviously want their own way most of the time right that's understandable so same thing happened with him on Beastmaster so he was he wanted the phantasm kick that made him famous where he had total and complete uh, autonomy but Dino De Laurentiis wouldn't allow that you know and also King had to keep rewriting the screenplay over and over again so you know there were a lot of problems and then they started filming without a werewolf (laughs) in a suit or a werewolf (laughs) design so eventually he left. But, you know, the best shots in the movie, I think, is Coscarelli. You know, especially these scenes of this this small town of Tarkers Mills and the people and, mm-hmm. you know, um, just it, the, the, the characters just gazing into each other's faces. And that's very Phantasm-esque. I don't know if you guys, oh, yeah. you know, love Phantasm, but I, I adore that film. So oh, you yeah, can see crazy. Coscarelli. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so this Daniel Latias, he probably did a good job in wrapping it up, but I don't know. I can see more Coscarelli. Right, and this is his first. This is his earliest director credit on IMDb. So I bet he was probably maybe a second unit guy who was just brought yeah. in as a last minute sub. Or, I mean, if the order had been different, I would have thought maybe uh, the producers just wanted somebody who could come in who was just very efficient as a journeyman TV director who just kind of comes in, does exactly what is told, and produces the thing that the producer wants rather than bringing his own unique vision. I mean, that was. Kind Kind of, they're the the that's the legend of um, and now I can't Ralph uh not Ralph um but the Christopher McQuarrie no that's not his name I don't remember the name of the guy but the guy who directed um, Return of the Jedi um was basically uh, from what I hear it was handpicked by George Lucas because oh. he could basically do the the cinematography work while it was really Lucas kind of doing everything doing pulling the, the strings so, yeah yeah. Um, <laughs> He wanted, oh, yeah. Lucas wanted more control over that one than he got during The Empire Strikes Back. Um, so, yeah, and then you're saying about the producers too. You know, you recognize Dino De Laurentiis. You know, that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. those those opening credits of uh, Halloween loom large in my brain. You know, as a kid, seeing that name mm-hmm. and be like, "Whoa, that's a wild name, man! Where's this guy from? What's he all about?" But yeah, that's a that's a big name there. But um, so, what about the cast here? You know, we got our <laughs> our top billing as uh, Gary Busey, who has kind of uh, become a bit of a a caricature in these days but you know back then he was uh making some crazy action movies and stuff like that so he was a pretty big name uncle red yeah, yeah. what do you think about him ryan <laughs> uh, he, uh, it's 
he he is a character. He's, I mean, he's a meme at this point, pretty much. So <laughs> just gonna, it, it's hard to say. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think of when I think of him, I kind of I do I tend to think of this movie, and I think of um, Point Break. Oh yeah, kind of like the, he <laughs> he exists in this weird little world between these two performances. Um, but yeah, he's he's kind of he's like great. Like he he is perfectly comes off as like the crazy uncle who parties a little bit hard, who's a little bit irresponsible and reckless. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he, he kind of fits that mold. Um, more, more sort of genuine and good hearted in this one than you would expect. Um, and I think, I mean, King really kind of made him an interesting character in this script because it'll come for like most of these characters, like King really created for the script. They, they weren't, they didn't exist in any shape or fashion like this from the book so mm. yeah okay. yeah that's right yeah i think in the book it was an uncle al who just gave marty the fireworks and and then king made him into uncle red who's this mechanical genius or this <laughs> genius at, <laughs> yeah at uh you know creating ve- souped up vehicles for paraplegics <laughs> and, and appara- apparently he likes getting married and divorced <laughs> oh yeah three times so far right by my yeah. count and he's also an alcoholic but you know, he does have a character arc because during the, you know, events as they unfold, he sort of uh, stops drinking for Marty's mm-hmm. sake, for, you know, Marty Koslow, the little uh, crippled boy in the wheelchair. So, you know, um, a better, like you said, Ryan, I agree, better character in the movie than in the book. And the book is almost non-existent, really. You know, yeah. just a side character who, you know, initiates the fireworks scene, which is also in the book. But yeah, I, I loved him in this. I think this is Gary Busey's well, my personal favorite Gary Busey performance, I can't say, think that there would be another one that I could call his best performance. I mean, when I think Gary Busey, I think about this movie and maybe Lethal Weapon, you know, where he got that is ass beat by Mel Gibson. But you know, oh, yeah. other than that, I can't really think of any other Gary Busey roles. And then he he was on a couple of celebrity roasts <laughs> lately where, you know, <laughs> if he shows up in the crowd and they're roasting a celebrity or on the, 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 the you know, group of actors on stage he mm-hmm. inevitably gets roasted instead of the celebrity <laughs> so it's it's an uh, embarrassing shame but the guy you know he oh, i also i also think of him from predator 2 that role oh kind of, yeah oh the That's fbi right. agent or yeah, something kind of yeah. who's like yeah. secretly has this. <laughs> yep oh that is great yeah yeah i remember that yeah that scene with the dust <laughs> you know mm-hmm, the phosphorescent mm-hmm. dust and where they would try to <laughs> confuse the predator like that in that what was it a uh, Meatpacking meat place. Yeah, yeah meatpacking yeah. time. Oh, that's classic. Okay, yeah, that's a good one, Ryan. Yeah, he was in there, yeah. Mm. So in, interesting performance by old Gary here. Yeah, and then you said about, you know, pretty much the main character of the movie, uh, Marty, and that's played by Corey Haim. You know, so I thought he did a pretty good job here. You know, you can nitpick a couple of tiny little things because, like you said, he's supposed to be uh, a paraplegic, and you can, you know, kind of see a couple of things there. But uh, I think overall he did a pretty good job in this film with uh, – you know, with everything, you know, his dialogue and, you know, trying to act like his legs do not work. Like, I, what do you guys think? I think he did good. Yeah, I thought he was, I think Corey Ham is great in this one. I mean, this, again, when I think of him, I think of the Lost Boys first, License mm. to Drive second, and then this one. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, he, again, he was, he was a child actor, so you kind of judge them, put them on a different scale. Um, and to have a role that was kind of physically demanding in its own way. 
Um, I think he's really good as as a protagonist. He's charismatic. I mean, some of his dialogue, the the king king's dialogue, can be <laughs> interesting to read and sometimes nonsensical to to hear. Um, but it he does a good job managing it. He's you know compassionate. You you feel for him and his sister. Um, you, you know, you know, he, yeah, he's, he's a good kind of likable kid. So I think as, as a lead who kind of has to carry a lot of the dramatic and scary parts of this one, um, it's interesting because I mean, in a, in a horror type of movie like this, you would think that the main victim, the, or the, the not the main victim, but like the, the hero who is kind of constantly being in danger, constantly under threat would be a woman it's usually it's kind of like the, yeah. you know, the young teenage girl yeah, and in point. this case uh, maybe because of the fact that he's physically disabled that puts him in more of a slightly feminized or less kind of macho manly role so that does kind of put him uh, um in in slightly different cast more vulnerable um, but i think I, yeah I, I think Corey Haim is definitely able to sell that and he plays that off well as a kid who's smart capable um but also real and authentic so yeah yeah nothing nothing bad about his performance in this yeah i tend to agree with everything there i you know um we've got you know um my sister-in-law she's a paraplegic you know and um uh you you would expect it's difficult for them to you know move from one you know place to the next without the wheelchair you know if they like switch chairs or something like that and um you know i you know, I've been a fan of Silver Bullet since I was a kid. So when I got to know my sister-in-law, I sort of, I always think of Marty when I see her. But I mean, she's remarkably agile. <laughs> you know, her arms are super strong, probably mm. stronger than mine from yeah. years and years of, of manipulating, you know, her body Lifting. with just, yeah, her two two arms. So, you know, she moves easily between chairs and you can see that here and you would think that's bad acting or, but actually there's a scene where he drops down the trellis to steal onto mm-hmm. his motorized wheelchair to shoot mm-hmm. down the fireworks, you know, in the middle of the night. And that's, you could see the, the legs are, you know, limp and uh, it, it looks natural to me at least. And then there are other scenes where it doesn't look as natural, you know, when we first get to, or when he uh, climbs up a tree to get a kite, you can see that those, the the upper legs, the thighs are, you know, doing the work, <laughs> you know, so, um, but you know, I think for one of Corey Heim's earliest roles, this is pretty damn good acting. And one scene that that proves that is when he's sta- uh, sitting on his bike outside the um, baseball field. Oh, and, you yeah. know, he's seeing the kids run and play baseball and he's looking at their legs and how they fall. And it's this one scene where one kid like stumbles and takes a tumble and then Corey like flinches. But the flinch is not because he's worried about the kid. It's because he wants to down like that he wants to tumble he it's like it's like it jolts him back to to his intense desire for you know even the pain that being able to run brings or being able to move like that brings so that scene has always affected me and i always remember it even when i was a little kid i was like damn yeah for a horror movie yeah for a horror movie there's a couple of scenes in here that are just like oof, man they're they're tugging on the heartstrings for sure (laughs) his sister she was good pretty good too uh megan follows and by the way, she turned into a complete uh, hottie when she uh, grew up, dear Lord. But uh, yeah, she was pretty good, too. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought she was pretty awesome in this movie. She's a good it's it, they, there's a really good dynamic, you know, brother sister relationship with the two of them in here. You know, sometimes they fight. Sometimes they're, you know, you know, oh, sorry about, you know, you know, pissing you off and, you know, 
apologizing and a, a lot of good dynamics here. I think they worked well together here. Yeah, and lots of calling each other boogers. That's very <laughs> Stephen King-esque. You know, he likes to get his nicknames running. At least it's not shitters like in Christine. <laughs> boogers is slightly better than that, but yeah, well done, King. Yeah, so yeah, interesting. Ryan, do you have a sister or I don't even know. I should have no, asked you this. Oh, okay, so yeah, I do have a sister, and this is very similar, extremely similar to uh -huh. my relationship with my sister. <laughs> these little things that, you know, bug you as a kid. But obviously here it's a little bit bigger because she has to take responsibility for Marty. Uh, yeah. The mom sort of designated that as her role. She has to take care of her little paraplegic brother, and that's why she gives him a hard time all the time because she feels that he's impacting her life in a negative way. But she does love him. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can see that shine through a couple of times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the beginning where we see this sort of friction between them, where she falls down in the mud and her pantyhose are torn, that is so not Marty's fault. I mean, sure, he went <laughs> on with it. He could have warned her about that, but he didn't know that was going to happen. That's totally Brady's fault, who's going to get his, by the way, soon. <laughs> but, you know, I thought, hey, that's unreasonable there, Janie. Jeez, leave your little mm. brother alone. It's just a reason for her to go off on him. Yeah, it kind yeah. of is. I mean, we have one yeah. other, like, you know, I would say main player, you know, in the film, and that's uh, Reverend, not Herman Lowe, Lester Lowe, <laughs> played by Everett McGill. So uh, what about him? I thought uh, he was pretty good in this one. He's uh, really, he seems like, you know, a decent guy at first, and then he goes off the rails, and you can tell, like, oh, you know, at some point, you know, if you're a, a horror movie watcher, you're like, you know, there's a, a telltale sign in this movie where it's like, oh, I get it. He's mm. the uh, he's the bad guy. <laughs> he's great. I, I knew him from Twin Peaks. Uh, I used to watch mm. that show in the, oh, in the yeah, 90s same. with my dad. Um, very interestingly, in that show, he was married to a woman who had an eye patch. Uh, and then, Whoa, oh, wow. In, yeah, that's in true. This, <laughs> in this one. Um, and then, yeah, but I, like to look at his IMDb credits, it's kind of shocking because he did Twin Peaks in the early 90s. And then hardly anything until the Twin Peaks reunion about five years ago. But he's been huge on, on stage, on Broadway and, and theatrical mm -hmm. credits. He, he's been doing that stuff for years. Um, and I think he's a great actor. He just he's done most of his stuff off screen. Um, but yeah, I think he's he's great. He, he's very charismatic and he comes on um, as this, you know, young preacher trying to bring the community together in, in these desperate times and the turn when it's revealed kind of like what's going on <laughs> with him later on uh is is fascinating and you see sort of like this desperation about him as uh he he, he plays uh, sweaty and, and fearful very well yeah <laughs> oh yeah for sure what about you herman yeah i only knew this guy from Silver Bullet. And then when Twin, Twin Peaks became a big thing, you know, in especially in South Africa, Twin Peaks hit it off big. Probably all, you know, Western countries where English is the first language, right? I think Twin Peaks had a major impact. Probably, and, yeah. Uh, then I, I was like, hey, the guy from Silver Bullet, you know? So, uh, but then like Ryan says, I didn't see him in much else. And, you know, he's got a very distinctive looking face and he could play a horror villain in, in multiple movies for the rest of his life, you know, because he's got that look. But in this, you know, he does play the benevolent reverend. So I, I really enjoyed his role here. Although, you know, yes, this was a little bit too close to home because we used to have a minister who, <laughs> who speaks just like he does. Because, you know, you have 
you, when you know your minister, you're in a small town, you get to know him personally, of course, his wife, his family, whatever. Um, but then, you know, when they enter the church, they become a different person. You know, when it's time for the sermon to commence, they they adopt a different voice. And this guy, Reverend Lowe, is the same, but he keeps the voice all the time throughout the movie. It's like the slow drawl where he says, the Lord teaches us that, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I would associate those with like nodding off in church and <laughs> sleepy time. <laughs> But, you know, our reverend, when he was out of that mode, he was very active and interesting. And, you know, he was, he was, he was a fun guy. You know, he coached baseball and uh, sorry, cricket, I should say. What am I saying? Ba baseball. He coached cricket, uh, all kinds of stuff. You know, he was very active in the community. But then when he entered the church, it was that, you know, total transformation. That That's what Reverend Lowe makes me think of. When you first see him doing a speech, uh, you know, at that festival they were having or mm -hmm. that church drive in the beginning. Yeah, where old Janie got her pantyhose torn, mm -hmm. and uh, there I can already see that uh, that similarity in the speech patterns. And then, of course, when the reveal happens, you you you, it's a big surprise. It was a big surprise for me, I think, way back when. Although, like I said, I can't remember the first time I saw this. I did not see that coming, you know, because I read the the novelette after I saw the movie, you know. So it was a surprise to me. I remember I was like, no way, I didn't. What the Reverend? What the hell? <laughs> yeah, but that's that's a it's a very good choice because it's the last person you would expect, you know, and then you get the whole good versus evil question, you know, like um, and how the reverend tries to turn that into good, but it's actually still evil. And mm. it's all part of the Lord's plan. That kind of thing makes for interesting storytelling. I mean, Ryan and I recently went through this on uh, FW Presents with Midnight Mass, right, Ryan, where oh, there's yeah. also a religious character who yep. <laughs> sort of tries to turn evil into good. Mm hmm. Yeah, mm, but, yeah, uh, definitely check that out. Yeah, that was a great show you guys did uh, with uh, uh, your wife. That was awesome. I really enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, this guy, Everett McGill, for me, it's this movie and um, a movie, uh, Clint Eastwood vehicle, Heartbreak Ridge, where he plays Major Malcolm Powers, and he's like an antithesis to, uh, you know, his uh, Eastwood's character on that film, and he's a real jerk, you know. So that, and then I also see in IMDb, he has another credit of, playing a character on the television series Werewolf. And I loved that series, and I don't recall him being on there, so I'm going to have to search hmm, that no. out. I've never seen that series, and I can't, yeah, I can't speak to that. Wow. The series yeah, I Werewolf. I should look that up. Yeah, I think you can find it on, like, YouTube and places like that, but it's, I don't know that it's ever been put out on DVD, or if it was, it was many, many years ago, but I think there was an issue with some of the rights to music because, you know, Ryan, you'll know this well with you know, your brother's heavily into music that mm -hmm. there's like a couple of episodes where there's, you know, like a legitimate, like, you know, rock and roll kind of song in the, yep. in the episode. So they can't get the rights to do it. So they're just like, screw it. We're not going to do it. Cause you know, you don't want to put it out with two or three or four episodes missing. That would be crazy. So they're just, that's why that never has come out, I think. But, uh, Okay, so, all right, now we got through the cast here mostly. I mean, there's a couple other good ones, too. Uh, the opening scene. So, <laughs> that guy from the opening scene, too. He's another guy that's like, he's alive in the movie for about, you know, 10 seconds. Okay, maybe 30 seconds. But uh, James Gammon, he always is going to be the coach on uh, the movie Major League with Charlie Sheen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we see him, uh, you know, going down the... Uh, train tracks here i guess he works for the railroad you know and he has to keep them clear and clean them off and stuff like that and you know he's creeping around out there and it seems like he's uh 
half in the bag already too. He's drinking beer while he's doing his job <laughs> and everything else. But uh, yeah, he uh, he doesn't last long, does he? <laughs> no, yeah, Arnie Westrom, right? That's his character, right, Ryan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. the first fatality. So yeah, speak on that. Yeah, well, he, he loses his whole entire head. Um, which is and the whole setup is we then get the voiceover from grown-up um sister yeah janie yeah yeah uh describing how the fact that you know like he was the first victim of this monster but they wouldn't know about it because the circumstances surrounding his death everybody just assumed that he got drunk fell down on the train tracks and the train ran over his head and this is one of the first things that we kind of see that in this movie, like the werewolf isn't attacking for food. He's not like chewing up and yeah. eating any of these people. He's just killing like murder. Yeah. 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 Mm. Well, in some cases he's got like this sort of, you know, fanatic religious oh, yeah. decision to do it. But like this one is like, yeah, he just, just go. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there need to be a reason. Just, Wanted to off this guy and just yeah just a slash from this werewolf's like Oof. hand just take the head clean off which is pretty pretty That's gruesome brutal. and interesting yeah. yeah that is you know what brutal. I love <laughs> I love that first scene because this is Don Coscarelli directing this 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 part right after you see the head lying on the tracks the next morning and the train <laughs> arriving to crush it into a pulp you have you know cuts to the next scene very Hitchcockian where <laughs> Brady know, Brady. Um, You know, Marty's friend, he runs over a cockroach with his bike. And in the beginning, I thought, why is he suddenly like, you know, stopping in front of the camera with his bike bike and saying, yeah, pumping his fist. I was like, what? And then I realized, oh, yeah, he's the one who ran over the cockroach and he was aiming for it. (laughs) So, you know, the head being crushed in that scene, you know, following on of that, I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) Just a bit of Pascarelli having fun with the medium of films. Classic. And like you mentioned, Ryan, yeah, we'll have uh, Megan follows a uh, character, uh, Jane. She's, you know, in as an adult remembering back to all this happening. And there'll be some bits of narration through the film, which are real good. That's that's her, her voice, which I don't know about you guys, but I didn't care for the narration. I felt like almost all of that could have been lifted and you don't lose a ton of exposition, like a pretty simple line of dialogue could have covered some of this. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. That that wasn't necessary to the film at all. I do like what she says at the very end there after everything's over. But we'll get we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. But yeah. So yeah, that was there the 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 killing there. But yeah, you know, you see right away with Jane and Marty, you know, that they're a typical brother and sister. And I had an older sister, and <laughs> a lot of these things, like her <laughs> was saying, kind of you know ring true. You know, when you have a, an older and a younger sibling, like there's a certain point where your kids and you're like, you know. You get along pretty well, and then I just start to get a little bit older, especially the preteen and teenage years. You're like, I don't want to be around you. You're a, a little, you know, nerd or something. So <laughs> the older ones usually think they're a lot cooler. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure my sister right now at this very moment is narrating my life somewhere far away in South <laughs> Africa, saying what happened when we were kids. <laughs> this little booger Herm, you know, <laughs> used to like <laughs> whatever I used to do. <laughs> Throw I didn't snakes. Do anything. <laughs> Oh, well, South Africa, yeah, you throw a snake, you're dead. <laughs> it's probably a black <laughs> mamba, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is just a garter snake. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you guys mentioned that scene earlier, too, of, you know, uh, Marty and his buddy Brady uh, playing a prank on Jane and 
throwing a snake yeah. at her. Of course, she falls and gets all pissed off. And then she actually goes to kind of have a moment by herself to kind of collect herself. And then she sees a, a woman and a man and they're having an argument, you know, and you can tell that the woman's pregnant and from this guy and he's tr- just being a deadbeat about it and doesn't want to help her out and takes off. And, you know, that leads into a, the next scene. Then when, uh, you know, that night comes. Yeah. Yeah. This sort of like, um, you know, uh, it's a premonition of the next murder almost as for mm-hmm. us as, you know, uh, watchers as viewers, because, um, later on, like Ryan said, it will be, uh, revealed that the killer is actually doing some of the murders for religious reasons, you know, so yeah. here we get to this particular reason, but we don't know this when we first see it, but this is a brutal scene, even though you don't mm. see, you, you see a bit of the, the murder, right. but yeah, I want you guys to talk about this because I oh, found this God. one very disturbing, especially since the lady was pregnant because soon after Janie sees her arguing with her, well, the father of her child, it basically cuts to that that very night where she seems to be living with her mom. Or I don't know if she's a boarder at a house or something, but I think it's her mom. I think so, and too, yeah. Yeah, it's only them in the house. The mom's playing piano downstairs, and then she's up in her room. And what is she doing? Mm. She is trying to overdose on pills intentionally to kill herself and kill the baby because she is that desperate that she cannot take care of this child alone. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so the... And, Eventually, when we do find out that the werewolf is the Reverend Lowe, that he knew she was pregnant and knew what she was planning to do. So in his in his warped view that killing her was an act of mercy, because if she had gone through with committing suicide, she would have been condemned to hell. She could not go to heaven. But at least if she was the victim of a horrible murder, then at least her soul could be, you know, her soul and her her child's soul could be saved in the afterlife. Mm, yeah that scene is brutal i think that was one that i think the first time i saw this film you know uh like i said i think it was on television but i think i remember seeing you know other than maybe the language because it's just you know that that's how it is here in the united states you know ryan you know this well we'll have a horror movie and we can't say a couple four-letter words or show you know sex but we can show the gore out the wazoo so i think i remember (laughs) seeing this movie and it, it it pretty much showed all these murders, you know, these killings. And I was like, wow, I was like really like kind of a little taken aback by that scene. It was, it was pretty rough. Well, well, one part of that murder is where, um, at first he's just sort of wrestling with her. Right. But then, mm-hmm. um, uh, there's a quick, quick cut to his claws ripping up the mattress and you can see the springs popping out. And then you, you kind of already imagine what these claws can do to a human being, oh. especially like a fragile lady who's in her, 90 right Mm -hmm. so then the very next scene is claws ripping down her back and then ripping her leg to shreds for god's sake and then her mom finds her in the room torn apart lying on her back with her head drooping off the bed the edge of the bed Mm -hmm. it is disturbing and you can see all this detail in the blood and i mean this was the age of tom savini no so so you know everybody was competing with him every Mm -hmm. you know um yeah uh, you know uh so this is very detailed and i found this very disturbing this this is more disturbing than the first murder by a factor of 10 i'd say at least (laughs) but prior to the attack we actually see the from the werewolf's POV as it's approaching her house mm-hmm. and then climbing up like the lattice and everything. <laughs> I don't know if that would work. <laughs> and we see its hands. And that is one of those things where um, I, I think 
you know, it, this this coming after uh, American Werewolf in London, you know, that sets such a high bar for yeah. werewolf effects, the transformations that everybody tried to capture, and also what the monster actually looked like. And I think we'll. Uh, I don't think this was the best looking werewolf, and, and to see <laughs> yeah. its it, to see its hand as it's climbing up a ladder to get to a woman's second floor. I'm kind of like, you're kind of taking the scary part out of this for me. It's just kind of like, I'm, I'm a little bit less. I mean, you, you know, the savagery and the brutality of the murder will be one thing, but it, I was always, I was already kind of a little bit chuckling inside just by like the, the sight of the hands and everything as it's climbing up. Yeah, if they had gone super detailed on the hands, you're right, it would have been a much scarier effect. But as it were, it just looked like a hairy brown mitten (laughs) or, (laughs) you know, someone wearing some fake werewolf suit, which it was. But, you know, it really looked that way. Yeah, you're right. And um, I also think they gave away a little bit too much. You know, we we know it was a werewolf, but, you know, from the first murder. But you didn't really the the close swipe was done really well that decapitated old Arnie on the tracks. I it was so fast that yeah, very quick. Yeah, you didn't really see exactly what it was. But then the howl afterwards sort of confirmed that it's a werewolf, but you're not quite sure yet. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, we knew no, knew it's a werewolf, obviously being, you know, silver bullet, but you want them to build up slowly to it. The hand on the lattice. Yeah. Like Ryan says, that's sort of it's a little bit too much too early on, you know, and um, and didn't look at all like I would expect the werewolf's you know hand or claw to look. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. a little bit. There's a couple of other instances like this in the. In yeah, the movie too. For for the large part, the transformation scenes are okay. They're nothing like American Werewolf in London, but you know they're okay for me. Uh, especially a dream sequence we'll talk about later on. But you know <laughs> these early you know scenes of the it makes me feel as if they filmed this while still you know having the debate over how to present the werewolf, you know how to design the the werewolf, and and that did happen. You know that's the biggest problem with this movie in the production stage was them trying to find a suitable look. Uh, a lot of heads were butted, you know, trying to come up with that. Yeah, this is more of a werebear than it is a werewolf. So, well, <laughs> that's that's probably, yeah. the, you know, that's obviously like the elephant in the room or the biggest uh, complaint pretty much anybody I would ever talk to about this film has about it. You know, I mean, there's obviously tons of little tiny things you can nitpick, but you can just kind of be like, well, I can get over that. But a lot of people are like, yeah, but the werewolf, man. And I'm like, yep, I gotcha. I, <laughs> I always, you know, I agree with people, but. Um, so then, yeah, you know, we get to the, see these, uh, cops that are kind of like, you know, bumbling cops that really <laughs> can't, uh, do a job too well here. So I love how they have them, but there's a packed bar in the middle of the day. I'm thinking, holy crap, where is this? Like, you know what I mean? They go into a, that bar scene there, the first one of the movie, there's three or four of them, but it's, in, it's like, it seems like it's like, you no, know, 11 o'clock in the morning and it's a packed bar full of people just, you know, tying one on already. It's like, uh, don't you people have jobs? <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, I think that's a local local gossip hole, right? Where this is just <laughs> after the second murder when they knew that this is not just the work of, uh, you know, ha- you know, a misfortune like they yeah. thought Arnie's death was. They know there's mm-hmm. a murder out there. So obviously they might have congregated there to talk about it. And um, they do, you know, they discuss it. And uh, uh, they've, they've got this rabble rousing kind of thing going on. But you know, the cops, yeah, they're bumbling, but the, the one of them we forgot to mention is Terry O'Gwen from, from Lost, right? Yep. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. 
I remember when he showed up in Lost, I was like, hey, another Silver Bullet alumni. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's like, I don't know if I, I guess maybe bumbling cops isn't quite the word for it, but they're definitely used to being a cop in a small town where nothing really happens. You know, I mean, you can tell they're, he, he seems like a real good guy and a real good person, but it's just, you know, when the crap starts hitting the fan, they kind of don't know what to do, which it's kind of their job to know what to do. But I guess, you know, hey, if you're in this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, like, you know, what's the worst thing that usually happens? You know, a speeding ticket or throwing somebody into the drunk yeah. tank once in a while. <laughs> yeah. But um, still, uh, you know, you can you can call his deputy a bumbling. <laughs> you know, <or> <laughs> He's definitely bumbling. But, you know, um. They they promise well they they say that there's going to be you know some Fed showing up or some Smoky Bears or whatever, um, <laughs> yeah. and they never do. You never get to see any of them, you know. And you'd think that this town could benefit from a, a larger police mm-hmm. presence, after, but it never happens. For throughout the entire cycle, there's never a larger police presence that shows up, right. which is yeah, weird. They focus they focus more on the vigilantism of the crowd mm. of the town, and we really skip over any any sense of like an investigation or what the cops are actually doing after these crime scenes. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then of course it's the last day of school. So we get a scene with, you know, Brady and Marty and then uh, a young girl there uh, heading out like, Oh, it's the last day of school. And, you know, Marty walks the girl home and then we get a shot of this uh, complete scumbag alcoholic guy and his uh, bigotry, which I thought, Man, I hope this guy gets killed. And then, of course, uh, we you see get some your fo- wish. <laughs> foreshadowing. And yeah, we get our wish. Like, that's one of the worst. Uh, that's one of the best times I ever thought. Yep, I was I was glad to see him go. I hope he gets it and he doesn't. Uh, I enjoy that scene. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the reasons, right, that Marty also hates the werewolf because, you know, uh, eventually, you know, Fourth of July gets canceled, which is his favorite holiday, you know, lost fireworks. His best girl is driven out of town after the murder of her dad, which is this, like you say, this drunken uh, a-hole. And mm-hmm. then, you know, also is, well, we'll get to his best friend later. But yeah, this 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 was a striking contrast to me that this, you know, fresh little young, you know, uh, ebullient little girl is the daughter of this, you know, drunken pig. You know, mm. I, I find that disturbing. I mean, it doesn't automatically go to the place where I think he does horrible things to his kids because she seems well adjusted and her dad's abuse is merely verbal or whatnot, or not even. He he verbally abuses Marty, sort of, not not her. But, you know, he definitely has this hold over her and probably over her mom as well, which immediately makes him a reprehensible character, right? So, yeah, you feel a sense of elation when he gets it, <laughs> when he gets torn <laughs> apart. And I thought his murder was... One of the more interesting ones. What do you guys think about how he died in his uh, greenhouse? Right. I was, I was first of all surprised at how big and how well laid out that greenhouse was. Um, yeah. For, for his type of character, <laughs> I was like, oh, like is like, is that his job? Does he have like this nursery? Because this is a pretty significant and like, it just seemed like the werewolf was like just toying with him and like like biding its time and just like waiting and then for the fact that it just kind of like rips through the the ground and like pull or rips through the the flooring to pull him down to the second level and he kind of actually he's he's impaled on just Ooh. beams again yeah. instead Ooh. of instead of again being like really savagely mauled by this werewolf you know that's not the thing that kills him so I, kind of interesting that it's like okay you didn't you almost didn't need a werewolf to be the killer in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's incidental, like kind of. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, interesting. Uh, but he did the, like the care of that dad. He was a he was a total king type of character. We see him in every one mm. of King's books that type. Um, and I, I did want to kind of cycle back to like the earlier scenes when we spend time with Marty and his sister and his family in like the town in very short order. I mean, one of the things that King does really well is kind of world building and establishing relationships. And sometimes his characters can be a little bit um, uh, kind of caricature ish a little bit if they're if they're very broadly painted, at least in translations. Um, when you don't really get into the characterization that he puts into the into the prose, into the text. Um, if you're looking at him, they can kind of be sort of superficial that way. But he he is good at just very quickly capturing, okay, who are the dynamics of these characters? What type of town is this? Okay, we see it. These things feel familiar. They feel kind of lived in. Um, everything is a little bit heightened, a little bit exaggerated. I kind of feel like... Stephen King and Stan Lee were sort of cut from the same cloth that, you know, <laughs> like the King King writes his dialogue, like even in movies with kind of this understood that every line kind of has an exclamation point at the end. And it kind of leads the characters to always be a little bit over stressing and a little bit over kind of yelling the dialogue and it doesn't necessarily feel as natural as it could and and kind of grounded everything is a little bit a little bit more intense in kind of what yeah. could be very quiet very normal scenes between characters so that tends to be a little bit of an issue with his with his film adaptations of his books um but it's still i mean like like the 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 characters are very easy to understand, very well likable, very early on. So, you know, you see Marty, you know what he's about, what he likes, that this is a kid you root for. So, like, instantly you, you, com- you contrast him with this crappy, alky, bigot father of this girl. And you're like, yeah, I hope that guy dies painfully. well yeah it's true what ryan says like you know why do we as comic book fans like superheroes because you know they're the idealized versions of you know humanity sort of uh, in our minds but you know and on paper of course but why do we like stephen king so much is because he idealizes his characters but you don't always want to be them but you want to live in the world with those characters you know because they're so exaggerated like like you mentioned ryan and so um unrealistic but still tied to realism where you might see a personality like that in real life and then this is the hyper real version of that personality presented by king so you know the town bully that you you're used to he will turn out to be a serial killer Mm -hmm. or a psychopath like henry bowers (laughs) or something and you know um stuff stuff like that you're right he has these hyper hyped up characters or sort of uh, you know these exaggerated personalities in his works and this is definitely it and Tarker's Mills I think it wouldn't have been if you had another screenplay you know or a screenwriter doing this movie you know if you just yeah. adapted the the book this is definitely King showing what makes him good but like you also say the dialogue is a little bit unnatural the characters are you know uh, some someone you won't expect to meet in a small town much less d- a dozen of them which you do in this story. There are a dozen weird characters here that, that are Stephen King templates from some, from some of his earlier books at this point in time. But, you know, I, th- mm-hmm. I think, I mean, definitely there's some strong points here, like the, the pacing, which is probably more for up to the director. But you get these, these scares 
And, you know, King sticks to his formula that he, you know, outlined in Don's Macabre, which is, you know, if you can't give someone a jump scare, give them a gross out. And he does that a couple of times here with the werewolf. There are some jump scares and then there are some gross outs. And then there's also the slow build to a scene where you'll, you're no, you just know the terror is going to just explode, but you don't know when it's going to happen. So some strong points here, you know, definitely when it comes to the various murders. And this was an interesting murder, the father of, of Marty's best girl, as Uncle Red describes her, <laughs> who's, who soon leaves town. We don't see her leave town. But um, because of the murder of her dad, right, They're, the family packs up and just moves away. Uh, yeah. This is, yeah. And then what happens next? This is the most disturbing one for me, the, the, the one that, that comes up next. Yeah, I mean, I, we did. I forgot to mention, too, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say they King also did a good job here of, you know, when Uncle Red shows up and you can see, you know, he's on his, you know, getting out of his third marriage and he's, you know, heavy drinker and. Uh, he comes to hang out with Marty and stay there for a few days. They play a card game, but you can see Marty's mom. She's kind of getting really pissed off at him because, you know, he's drinking around him and maybe acting a little out of hand. I didn't think it was terrible, but, you know, I can understand uh, her uh, trepidation there. But it, you get the impression, you know, and even Uncle Red says it at some point, too, that there's some, you know, very distinct correlation between, you know, Uncle Red and Marty's mom and Marty and his sister. Yeah, oh, there definitely is. But also, I mean, taking it to comics, like she's she's Susan Storm and he's Johnny Storm. He's the boy. Yes. He never yeah. really grew up. He's still yep. kind of in this arrested development stage. So to Marty or, you know, Franklin Richards, you know, he's he's not uncle. He's like a big brother. He has the yeah. same sensibilities and the same attitudes as a kid. So naturally, Marty's going to hero worship this guy. But to his mom or Red's older sister, He's a guy who never grew up and she's she doesn't want, you know, him her son to hero worship this guy. She's you know, that's that's a problem for her. Mm. Yeah. And plus uh, he drinks around Marty and she's worried that this will one day when Marty's older and maybe Uncle Red's not there anymore. Marty will follow suit because um, he's got more reason to, according to the mom, to give up than than Red does, you know, with with the fact that he's. A paraplegic and one day he'll just find it all too much and when he doesn't have his family to support him he might turn to alcoholism or you know i don't know any any paraplegics who do that most of the ones i know through uh, my sister-in-law you know who's got a circle of friends um you know they're very positive people but you know it's conceivable this that a mom could worry about this about her son oh yeah you know who she knows he's going to spend the rest of his life as a paraplegic so she doesn't want him to to sort of copy the uncle and the life that he leads in in the latter days. And, you know, it seems that he has sort of, I don't know what happened to him. You know, there might have been something in his past, but he, he seems to be very self-destructive. And normally people who are self-destructive do that because of a sense of uh, inadequacy or guilt or something that happened that made them feel as if they're not worth the trouble, you know, to themselves to, mm -hmm. to rehabilitate. But, you know, Marty is the anchor that sort of ties Uncle Red to, I think, his humanity because he does take what the sister says to him that very first night that we meet Uncle Red. He does take it to heart. You know, yeah. she scolds him and says she doesn't want, you know, Marty to to get a crash course in how to, you know, ruin your life or how to just flush your life down the toilet. And so then he starts to sort of realize that, hey, 
it could impact Marty, I think. And then he starts to sort of uh, make an effort to stop drinking. He do, he still drinks on his own. You know, we see him wake up in a, in, in the bed of or, or uh, with uh, this girl waking up in his bed one night or one morning. And there's a bottle of Jack Daniels <laughs> or something right next to the bed. But, yeah. you know, he just doesn't drink around Marty anymore. So I don't yeah. think he completely gives it up. But, yeah, he becomes a better character through, you know, because of that argument, I think. And because, you know, he loves Marty. Yeah. And I mean, after that third killing, you know, when the bigot was killed in the greenhouse, you can see the fear in the town start to build where, you know, people don't want their you know small children outside playing and everybody's kind of like locking their doors and stuff like that. And it's, uh, you know, then we lead to Marty and his friend Brady, you know, uh, flying kites. And then Marty's sister Jane comes to get him and, you know, he's like, you coming, Brady? And he's like, yeah, I'll be there in a while. And Marty looks back at him and you think, you know, you know, uh oh, something's up here. And Oh boy, you don't see, you know, what happens, but you know, the reaction from uh, Brady's father, then when he shows up, oh man, that's, that's tough. Oh. Yeah. Ryan, what do you think about that, that Brady scene? I mean, there's a definite, you know, uh, it's just the filmmakers deciding not to show the horrific death of a child, but it's even more disturbing to me because of that. Yeah, and, um, you know, certainly plays differently if you are a father. Um, yeah. But, mm-hmm. but, yeah, I, I think the sheriff who, you know, yeah, I mean, first of all, it's Terry O'Quinn in, in retrospect. You know, we like him. We, we want to root for him because he's not bumbling. He's not incompetent. He's just over his head, and he just yeah. he needs help for this type of investigation. He, as we said, he kind of never gets it. Um, I think he could have tried a little bit harder to keep the Brady's dad from the body, <laughs> seeing especially, that, yeah, especially after seeing it. Um, but yeah, like to when it focuses on him and not showing him, but just to see the grief and the the, the screaming, the agonized, you know, like shouting, like almost like he, like the dad is howling himself when he sees the body. Mm, you know, we hardly mm. ever see that reaction, certainly not from a grown from man. a man, yeah. yeah. But certainly as he's, you know, witnessing the, as he describes it later, what the remains of his boy, oh. you know, it's a uh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's disturbing. Yeah. yeah this um, put me in mind of another King movie and book, of course, The Dead Zone, where in the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's a serial killer in Castle Rock. And one of the, the victims is found on this, you know, type of um, uh, what, what, what would you call that? That round little uh, a uh, couple or something yeah that and it's oh, so, yeah, gazebo. Um, the gazebo is the scene of a murder in dead zone and here the gazebo has the kid's body covered in what appears to be a raincoat or i don't know what it is but it's, it's this yellow sheet and um it's very similar to you know that uh, disturbing child murder too in the dead zone uh, on this gazebo so i think in there in that case it was a young girl uh, but here, you know, it's it's this boy, Brady, best friend of Marty, who was a bit of a, you know, a dick to Janie. But you, <laughs> you obviously don't feel he deserved this because he just wanted to stay out. I think there was already a curfew uh, at that point in time, but they had not reached the curfew stage yet. And he just wanted to stay yeah. out and fly his kite. And, um, you know, obviously the werewolf, it must have been nighttime, you know, that he got him. It has to be because it's a werewolf. Mm-hmm. But um so kind of brady's fault that he was out that late also maybe the fault of his mom and dad but they were out looking for him so you know kids they get wrapped up in what they're doing and he was 
you know, enjoying flying his kite. And, you know, you could, it's completely believable that he would have. Oh, yeah. You know, push that past the hours. And kids don't care about curfews. Come on. You, you, when you're a kid, you, no. you think you're immortal, <laughs> right? Nothing can touch you. Oh, uh, yeah. So <laughs> I can understand this. And it's very disturbing. Like, I remember when I realized what, what had happened because they don't show, it's just, it cuts to, to the dad showing up. You know, in in the bar when the the deputy and oh yeah, this rabble rouser is about to get into a fistfight over the sheriff's incompetence, the dad just shows up in this uh, drinking hall and says, "Have any of you seen my son?" And then I already knew, oh crap, this this is gonna get bad. And then it it does, but they never show it until mm-hmm. later when the dad describes how his son was torn apart and he flashes a a, a picture <laughs> of. Okay, I shouldn't laugh. I just, you know, it's nervous laughter, guys. Uh, I apologize. But damn, that must have been so upsetting. Oof. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. Walking around with mm. this picture of your dismembered son just to to show people, you know, uh, it's it's very disturbing to me. I, I still find this a very upsetting part of the movie, uh, something I don't really even want to think about. But yet I keep coming back to this movie <laughs> again and again, just self-flagellation at this point in time. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, what do you guys think about yeah the after effects? I think this is where it really jump starts the whole what do they call it? Private justice, the vigilante mob. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's when it happens, and we we see them. You know, all the townspeople think you know we're going to take the law into our own hands, and you know, like you said, the sheriff tries to stop them, and then uh, Brady's dad shows up and kind of tells the sheriff like you know how dare you try to stop them basically, and. You know, they all go out into the woods. But as they're heading out the door, somebody tries to stop them from going out and being vigilantes. And uh, uh, that's uh, our buddy, Reverend Lowe. He's there. Come on, stop. Don't do this. You know, and everybody's like, get out of the way, pal. You know, so I thought that was interesting that he was trying to stop them from going out there. I thought, hmm, I wonder why King did that, because I thought it doesn't seem towards the end of the movie that he cares about who gets murdered. So I don't know if he was worried about his own hide or what. Yeah, um, this is my theory, and I, I want you guys to chime in here. I think he was feeling guilt after the murder of Brady, because remember, he was, okay, he was um, uh, obviously giving the funeral and the sermon and with Brady's coffin in the church, um, and you could see that his face is is not like his usual determined scowl. It's more like, you know, he is openly shocked at what his other form or his other self did, mm-hmm. I think. To, to this kid and then he 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 had enough of murder murder for that you know night or for that time so that's probably why he wanted to stop these folks from going out because he knew there's no stopping the wolf right I guess he could have mm-hmm. chained himself up somewhere in a basement but <laughs> I don't think that would have worked so I think that was the night of the full full moon when he was totally out of control you know when the beast take took over completely I mean that's the theory that runs in the movie at least as given by Marty and Janie right yeah that, you know during the a uh, uh, complete full moon he's just the beast but during other times he can sort of control his actions a little bit hence the murder of the suicide or the potential suicide lady so what do you guys think about that the fact that he was feeling remorse maybe i'm wrong but you know it, it seemed that out of character for him to say that his murders were motivated by religion and then murdering brady what do you think ryan yeah, I mean that that seems to be a bit of a plot hole, a little bit of a complication in in the motivation there. I I think the fact that they, I I, I think maybe they kind of hit this problem early on when they realized, wait a minute, we have to explain why 
the werewolf was so cunning that it could almost premeditate this murder, this killing of this woman, and the reason why it specifically attacked her and didn't go through the front door to kill her mom, or who was an elderly woman who was more vulnerable, but why it specifically targeted her. And it had the the ability, the capability of climbing up very stealthily and then crashing through the window. <laughs> um, to For it to be that cunning and that deliberate implies a, a degree of cognitive thinking and, and intelligence. It's like, okay, so how do we explain that if, that if it's just targeting kind of random people? Um, I, I do think they needed to sort of backtrack, and that's why later on they come up with this explanation where they're like, okay, so yeah, during certain parts, certain phases of the moon, the 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 guy has a little bit more control over the beast, and he can kind of focus it and direct it. But when the moon is full, then it's all animal instinct and it's all rage, and and he can't control it. And that's when it's maybe at its most dangerous. Um, that's that that to me kind of felt like a little bit of script doctoring that they were just <laughs> like, all right, we let, we need to fix this thing because otherwise it's not going to make sense. Um, but yeah, it kind of works. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think he, so. Go ahead. He set the wolf loose, right, a guy? Mm-hmm. So you know, in the beginning, and then try to square it with his own moral, you know, uh, religious viewpoint. And then <clears throat> you know, now that the wolf is loose, he's realized that it's not that easy to control. So this might have been a consequence of that. And then you know, um, but you, we, we as you know, people who love the movie, we could square this in our minds easily if we wanted mm-hmm. to, you know. But I do think there was a bit of um, you know problems there, and they and they had to realize, oh, they got to fix this. But uh, they also just left it up to you know the the final explanation that's given later on in the movie, which is that he's not in full control all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this is also his descent into um, madness a little bit, the Reverend. I mean, that that happens more, you know, uh, more noticeably when Marty starts, you know, figuring out who it is and starts almost harassing and hounding the reverend, um, which we'll talk about later. But, you know, Mm -hmm. he I think he he kind of realized that, oh, this is like, you know, beyond what he planned. And now innocent people are suffering and maybe his soul is damned, but he doesn't want to admit it because he firmly believes in God's plan. We, We realize that later on in his speech he gives to Marty. Right. Everything mm-hmm. happens for a reason. So he's one of those guys who who would say that, oh, um, I, I did a bad thing, but it's all part of God's plan. <laughs> you know, it's like some of these, uh, you know, death row inmates, you know, in interviews, they always say that, you know, like, I'm I'm here for a reason. You like know, Manson. To, yeah, to cull yep. the herd. And those yep. guys are the most disturbing, you know, because oh, yeah. sometimes it rings true. Not, not from a religious standpoint, but, you know, just from a, you know, in, in large population centers where there's poverty and suffering, that's where serial killers normally come from, you know. So it's almost like nature sort of throwing them out there to 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 uh, thin us out, <laughs> which is disturbing. <laughs> that's just one theory. Of course, I don't, uh, you know, um, it's 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 very generalized. But, you know, this is sort of what the reverend believes. And he believes that God put me here for a reason. And my, my reason seems to be to murder people. So I'm just going to go with it. Mm. So, yeah, they they head out into the woods. What is there, maybe 15 or 20 of them? And it goes about as well as you'd expect as, you know, 15 or 20, you know, probably half drunk hillbilly people with guns going into a wooded area at night after a werewolf would go. I mean, it it works out about as pretty pretty much as well as you think it would, doesn't it? (laughs) 
Yeah, Ryan, what do you think about this this chaos in the fog? <laughs> Again, this was this was like the first scene of the movie that I saw when I was a kid. Mm. Like just kind of like first, ah. kind of like turning it on. Is just these people going through the woods, and I was like, are they looking for like a body? Are they look? What do they look? And then just kind of like falling into the the mist and everything, and just hearing it creep up on them, and they they like know they're like oh shoot we let's slowly get out of here we're we're no longer <laughs> the hunters now we are the hunted mm-hmm. um i just and i get seeing this at a very young level and that the type of situation has been done before um see the predator movies that we referenced earlier <laughs> um uh with, with gary Busey's character in that um so but but yeah, if we're seeing this at a very young and kind of primal age, that that situation, that reversal where the, they they got the numbers and they think that they're the you know the dominant predator hunter species in this situation, but oh no, they're not. They don't know what they're up against, and to have them just kind of pulled, yanked down into like beneath the fog and just torn apart, and then like their bodies thrown out like against trees and collapsing and everything. Um, and uh, have them just start running, and um, and Lawrence Tierney's character from—I uh, always think of him from Reservoir Dogs—having that big baseball bat. Oh yeah, um, and like trying to hit this thing until you just hear him scream, and then the werewolf's arm comes up out of the fog with the bat and mm. <laughs> comes down on him. Mm, yeah, yeah, really, yeah, really cool. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I, oh. it's like. The 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 cinematography the shoot the way this that whole situation was that whole sequence was shot to cover up so it's not as gory as it could be which I think is why I saw most of it on TV um, it's not as gory and they just it's it's done really well to kind of capture the the chaos the the sense of terror and and dread slowly building and then just how how quickly the whole thing just turns bad and goes all wrong for everybody. Um, and I just think it's a it's a really well done set piece in this movie that I've always remembered um, is like that's one like one of those key moments in the movie that stuck with me, you know, for like a decade, you know, until the next time I actually saw the movie in full was just the scene of hunters going out like a mob into the woods looking for this werewolf. And then they themselves start getting picked off in the darkness. And I loved it. Yeah, I mean, this. This brings to mind, you know, I think I they never mentioned this in anything I read about the movie or the research I've done, but I think this is also uh, sort of a homage to The Wolfman, you know, with Lon Chaney Jr. There's oh, a scene yeah. where they head on into the moors, and then they recreate that scene much later, uh, what, in 2011, when they when they redid The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins? Yep. Oh, yeah, yep. Same right. scene where they head off into the mist in the fog and... And they're taken out. And I love that because you know they're going to get it. And you just don't know how. You want to see how. And here it happens probably the best of all of those scenes. Other than someone getting bludgeoned to death with a silver cane in the Wolfman. <laughs> it's actually happened to the Wolfman. But here you get the wolf bludgeoning someone to death, the werewolf, with a bat. And that's mm. very unique, you know. And the bat shows up again later on. So mm-hmm. this is sort of um, a mini, you know, sort of... Uh, some Clue, foreshadowing there, yeah. The foreshadowing, yeah. And the, mm-hmm. the bat's called the Peacemaker, and it's snapped in two. <laughs> yep. And, um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I love that that scene, too, because you don't really see how he murders them. They're just like, Ryan, you said, dragged into the fog, but you can let your imagination run free, and you come up with all these bloody things in your mind. And the horrible things were done. Four people dead, and we see that by the 
the coffins on display in the church mm. uh, what i presume to be the next day or the next sunday i think it's the next day right <laughs> right so yeah i would so, i would think but yeah that's a weird scene there man that's crazy you like that one don't you Herm? i mean the first time i saw this and i saw that scene i was like what the heck this is crazy and then i that's when it kind of clicked in my head maybe not the first time i saw it but then definitely i was like oh okay they were kind of using this to you know throw you a subtle hint of you know who the actual werewolf is here because up until this point you know there was there was no real clues that i know of or you know i can think of yeah it has two effects right uh, when you see mm -hmm. the movie for the first time this has the effect of the reverend having a premonition mm -hmm. or a prophetic dream and um god showing him that this is what is plaguing the town werewolves right that's what you think mm -hmm. at first but then once you know that reverend low is the werewolf this is just you know this affirms his affliction and this also affirms my theory that he feels you know distraught or he feels you know uh, sick at heart for you know for what he is at this point in time it's only later that he starts to uh, uh, decide on one path where he has to survive but here, I, I think he's still conflicted and he he has these nightmares about, you know, werewolves being because he is the werewolf and the whole town turning against him uh, is sort of, you know, the, the fear that he will be outed as the werewolf, I think, and that he will get as good as he got uh, by being torn apart. So I think um, that this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie where the, the dream just deteriorates into the entire town and church turning into werewolves. And you've got this mad scene where the organist is playing <laughs> the organ in her werewolf form. And, you know, um, everybody just howling and dancing and it's going crazy. And then eventually mm -hmm. Reverend Lowe is sort of torn apart or he's swallowed up by this mound of fur, these furry congregation um it's it's a great scene especially since it starts off with you thinking that oh this is still reality but you know the the funeral service has already happened and this is just maybe the night after where he's having this dream that that you know, reality morphed into a nightmare so what do you think about that scene ryan um love it i mean for, for all, all <laughs> yeah. the reasons you guys say it's just it's so it's so crazy it's so i mean it's it's a nice way to like show some characterization for the reverend to show something in it i mean it, you don't you don't see that scene and automatically assume he's the werewolf no no um but <clears throat> you know in retrospect it doesn't it, de it definitely kind of triggers some like thoughts to say, okay what was what was going through his mind in the, at that moment um because then when he's waking up and he's like please let this end uh, you just think he's he's a man of God and faith who's being tested and who just he he can't he doesn't know how to communicate to his congregation and and to inspire them in the shadow of this these all of these deaths and these horrible horrible murders he doesn't know what to do so that seems kind of natural but like yeah definitely the fact that he's seeing werewolves in his dreams mm -hmm. and this type of haunting thing it's just as as a spectacle, as a visual imagery, to see an entire church group turn into werewolves, <laughs> and start, like, it is just—it is one of those visual stamps that you can put on a movie or a story that just lingers like a big WTF. That's just gonna like linger on, like, wow, what? Yeah. How much cocaine was Stephen King on when he thought of that? <laughs> well, this was pre-Tommy Knocker, so. 
well, yeah, a lot of cocaine at this point in time, right by his own admission. So, yeah. <laughs> it was the 80s. I mean, let's be real here. But, yeah, that seems crazy. I mean, the first time I saw it, you know, of course, you don't. I don't know that you can really tell it's a dream sequence until he wakes up from the dream. Cause you know, especially if you're younger and you see this movie, you're just like, Holy crap, what's going on here? And I was thinking the whole town, you know, they're all werewolves. And then I thought, wait a minute, they're all werewolves, but him. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, and like you said, and then he wakes up and says what he says. You're just like kind of getting, you know, it's, it's King planting that seed that, mm. you know, something's not right here, you know, which again, you guys have talked about it, you know, King, that's that's something he does really well too, you know. Anything that he's been involved with, he he plants these little seeds sometimes, and it gets you thinking, and you know, it comes yeah. to fruition later on. Well, just before we get off of this this dream uh, topic of this mm-hmm. uh, this particular scene, doesn't this call to mind the dream scene from American Werewolf in London, where David sort of he's still in the hospital, but then oh, the movie yeah. just cuts to him having this nice family time back home in the states with his family, and it's a you know, they're chilling in front of this fireplace and then there's a knock at the door <laughs> and then these Nazi werewolves show up and just machine gun the entire family to death. That Jeez, is this is, this is like a WTF moment that, you know, compares to the one with, uh, well, I mean, I think in, uh, the silver bullet scene compares to that. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's in a church is even more disturbing, just yeah. like the American werewolf in London scene was in a cozy, you know, family home. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I think both both scenes were pretty well, but I think Silver Bullet having come after that, they definitely sort of had that in mind. Maybe this dream sequence that they also wanted to put in the film. Stephen King might have because, you know, he wrote Dance Macabre and then he mentioned, you know, American Werewolf in London in there, I think. Or that might have been in the second edition when he when he sort of updated it in the in the introduction. But um, he definitely was a fan of of John Landis's classic. So I think, you know, then him writing the screenplay after that you know, definitely had something to do with that. I'd like to think this has not been documented, by the way. This is my opinion, but a fantastic scene in both films. But then yeah. we get more to, to Marty now, right? Marty. Oh, Marty yeah. Is now yeah, he's already suspecting that it's not a natural killer because Brady mm-hmm. was torn apart. You know, everybody's torn apart up to this point in time. So a kid, yeah. you know, with imagination. Think about it. Kids are more, especially in King books, they're more apt to go that leap to to have that, you know, leap and just completely jump over logic and then say, OK, this is a monster mm-hmm. rather than a serial killer or a psych- psychopath. I, yeah. And Marty does that. Mm. I, I like that scene with him and Uncle Red in the car. And he kind of says, to him, like, what if it's a monster? And he's like, yeah, you know, like a werewolf. And of course, Uncle Red just laughs at him because, you know. This is it's a trope that's been used in a lot of movies, but I do like it where it's, you know, like you're saying, Herm, where there's, you know, a, a, a youth or a child, you know, they haven't been trying to think of what the, the term or phrase is where, you know, you kind of lose that when you can become an adult, that that bit of fantasy, that bit of, well, maybe it is something unbelievable where you, you don't think that way when you're an adult, but you do when you're a kid. Well, see, well, yeah, King in particular used that to great effect in most of like his early books for his for, like the first decade of his career. And it, that book was very much a thesis, his master's mm. thesis on, on like the first, you know, generation of his books. But to him, like he always said, like the reason kids can do that is because to a child, the magic is real. Mm-hmm. Like that's like, that's the phrase he actually used. So the kids haven't been desensitized to, to 
fantastical things. They still believe in those type of monsters, so they can make the deduction. It's sort of like, like whatever, if it's not impossible, it must be the truth. Well, to a kid, that's a, a monster isn't impossible. It's, it's entirely possible. And if that is the most logical deduction, then it must be real. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. I mean, I don't know about where you guys grew up, but I'm pretty sure you guys grew up near woods and forests, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the same with us. Uh, you know, we in South Africa, you know, when you live in a suburban area, it borders on the forest or the woods or the felt, you know. So we had a, you know, a fairly large bit of forested area right adjacent to my house until much later when they sort of cleared that and more houses were built. But we were definitely on the outskirts of my little town. And, um, you know, uh, there, you know, I remember after seeing this movie and a couple of others, of course, but walking through the woods and even during daylight and I would like be, Mm -hmm. my senses would be heightened, you know, because I would keep imagining, I wasn't imagining things that were real fears back there, like wild dogs or, you know, even the odd, you know, we, we did have that, the odd lion or something straying or the, not, not the lion, the leopards would sometimes, you know, they, they were mostly, you know, the, the animals that were capable of crossing borders or fences and stuff like that. You know, you can't keep a leopard in, but lions were basically, basically they were all, you know, controlled at that point in time. But you had the odd, you know, instance in South Africa where some of them would, you know, happen upon a, you know, a suburban area sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, I would not be worried about that at all. I would be worried about a werewolf or you know, some other <laughs> creature, especially at night. But I would mm-hmm. still go out at night, you know, with my friends. You know, you have your friends with you, you feel brave. But then, you know, as they head off in their own directions and you're left alone walking home, you kind of start thinking about that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's what King's so good at, you know, having these childhood fears uh, be first and foremost in the story. And then they become real <laughs> in his books. Mm-hmm. And I think a good example of that is from one of our favorite novels, Ryan, Salem's Lot. Mark Petrie mm. is the kid who immediately, you know, uh, susses out that this is a vampire. It's a vampire. Yep. And nobody else believes him, much to their, you know, detriment, uh, especially mm-hmm. the Susan Susan Norton in the in the in the book. Um, but um, uh, it is a very good example of that. This this. Uh, frustration with adults not believing you or not even willing to listen to your theory. Now, Uncle Red does listen to it, but he laughs at it, you know, at this theory of Marty's that it's a werewolf. But eventually, of course, Uncle Red being very sensitive to Marty's needs, he he decides, okay, him temporarily believing Marty and then Janie would sort of maybe set them straight and he would humor their fantasy for a while. Mm-hmm. Until it becomes ridiculously real for Uncle Red as well. Yeah. So um, yeah, but uh, let's yeah let's speak on on what happens next. I mean, basically, oh, yeah. Marty entering the story now because uh, first off, his best friend Brady's killed. His his best girl's driven out of town. The the fireworks are canceled, which almost seems more of a disturbing event. The Fourth of July being canceled <laughs> than the death of Brady, which is <laughs> not saying yeah. much for old Brady. But yeah, let's speak on that a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like that one. You know, Re- Uncle Red's going to leave town for a few days. But before he does, he, you know, uh, built a new uh, wheelchair for Marty. And then he gives him a pile of uh, fireworks, too. And is like, hey, you know, be careful with these. Stay near the house. And he's like, OK. <laughs> he says that a couple of times, but he doesn't necessarily stay near the house, does he, Ryan? 
No, how far do you think he goes away? Like, Holy crap, a few miles, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just reeling. Sorry, guys. I'm just reeling at the fact that Billy just called that that thing a wheelchair. Man, that is a souped up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know what you call that. You know, custom built <laughs> rocket. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, a wheelchair. Yeah, sure. But it's like oh, a crap, super yeah. version <laughs> of a wheelchair. I mean, yeah, definitely this. And, they, you know, isn't it ironic that, hey, Marty's first wheelchair, which Uncle Red also built for him, this custom designed um wheelchair in the in the book he did have a wheelchair with an you know electric motor but it motorized it yeah. couldn't have gone as fast as the first you know motorized wheelchair but the second one he gives him also called the silver bullet much like the first one mm-hmm. it's ironic that the silver bullet you know is called that and then the werewolf shows up in the town i mean come on the reverend low must have seen <laughs> marty as his nemesis right off right from the get-go right <laughs> but mm-hmm. he didn't it was destiny. <laughs> Not up on his werewolf lore. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, he goes off with this, this these fireworks that Uncle Red gave him. And you can already see Uncle Red has now pulled himself together because they're having a family barbecue. Mm-hmm. Everybody's, uh, you know, uh, enjoying Uncle Red's company, showing what he used to be like probably before he was an alcoholic. And, um, you know, this this guy that everybody just likes. And Ryan and, and Billy, isn't it ironic that I don't know if you have people like this in your family, but the person who's who who's who, who's the person in your family who who whose life is a mess they're normally nice people when it comes to socializing i don't know not always but at least in my family it's like that with with one of my family members they're super nice to get along with and they're very they're great people and they're good with kids but their personal lives are uh, this just living hell and and uncle red reminded me of one one of them so, you know, the fact that he got it together and then this person in my family also got it together eventually, it sort of um, had another connection for me there as a kid with that moment of Uncle Red sort of mm. showing his, you know, what what he's like when he's not all, uh, uh, you know, hot mess. Yeah, but this this but sorry, scene with the fireworks, though, that's that's the real big that's you know, the one, kind yeah. of re- reveal scene of the, the, the werebear. We really get a good look there. It's kind of like... <laughs> Uh, I don't know here, you know, like, you know, we've, you know, Herm and I, you and I have talked about this before. I don't think we have with you, Ryan, but we've seen some really, uh, really poor werewolves in some older films, you know, like one that I still hold near and dear to my heart called the beast must die where it's basically a dog, (laughs) you know? So this, this werewolf compared to those is, you know, wow, cool. But, you know, compared to, like you said, the standard that was set by an American werewolf in London or the howling even, this one was a bit subpar, and this is where you really got a, a pretty good shot of, you know, the the werewolf here when Marty uh, shoots it in the eye with the rocket. Yeah, and I, honestly, to me, like, one of the werewolves that I hold in the highest esteem is from the movie Monster Squad. Um, oh, yeah. right, yeah. That was a real uh, that, that particular werewolf has nards, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, so that makes him extra real. He's got nards. <laughs> um, so so yeah so again like looking at yeah i'm not crazy about the look of the werewolf in this movie and that's one of the one of the biggest detriments to this movie is just i don't find the monster scary like this is one of Mm -hmm. those things like where you look at movies like jaws or alien or predator where they have to keep the monster unseen for a long time because they struggled with what it was going to look like in the production and then at some point they figured it out and they knew exactly what to do in order to make this thing look scary and look authentic, but also keep it hidden for the right amount of time. And 
it worked for those movies, but this one, it didn't. They kind of keep it out of sight for a long time because they never got it to look right. And then in the moments when you have to see what the werewolf looks like, it doesn't look very good. It's just, it's, yeah, it, it looks like a guy in a not good costume. Um, that said, this was one of those other scenes that sort of, in as a young viewer, this young primal mm-hmm. age, to see this kid, you know, in a wheelchair, you know, d- defenseless, you know, could have it would have been, we've already seen this monster kill a child who had full use of his legs. Um, and now we've got this kid alone in the dark who's about to be preyed upon, but has the wherewithal, the presence of mind to fire a bottle rocket into the thing's <laughs> eye and just have it yeah. light up the whole thing. And that gives the kid enough time to escape. I just thought that was great. I thought it was one of the coolest, most inventive scenes in the movies, like up to that time. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, again, yeah, when I was a like kid, like even though I saw this one time on TV and then I didn't see the movie again for like 10 years. Um, but like, I always remembered this movie for this moment. And then, you know, the, like the, the wolf, you know, chasing the people in the dark and picking them off, pulling them down into the fog. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. Just thought, yeah. Th- this moment was such a like, iconic looking scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the the best, well, the, the most iconic scene in the movie for me and in the novelette as well. I think this this is the scene around which the entire story revolves, really. Mm-hmm. Now, Stephen King has never, even in stuff like the Stephen King Companion, or he's never talked about his inspiration for, you know, uh, Cycle of the Werewolf, uh, not, not about specifics, you know. So I would say, though, that this could have been the the scene around which he he built the entire film. You know, this kid in a wheelchair taking on a werewolf and shooting this rocket through his eye. Because think about it, we all did it as kids, right? We shot off rockets and you were mm-hmm. you had the warnings, you know, from your elders and from siblings <laughs> and so on. Watch it, it's dangerous and you know it's dangerous because you can see it, especially if it's a rocket. So this is interesting. Like what if you're alone at night setting off fireworks? And then this monster approaches. What are you going to do? The only thing you have as a weapon are the fireworks. And this answers that question. What's going to happen <laughs> to that monster? Yeah. But, you know, like you said, Ryan, the fact that Marty's in a wheelchair makes it even more uh, upsetting and frightening because yeah. this kid's completely defenseless. Now, he's got this, this silver bullet, this um, wheelchair of his, but he's on a bridge. For God's yeah. sake, he has to turn this thing. He has to go mm-hmm. back the way he came. You know, if he was already turned towards the, you know, direction he was going into and the werewolf snuck up behind him, it would have been over. But, you know, that makes it even scarier because, he, you know, he shoots the werewolf in the eye with his rocket. Then he still has to turn around the wheelchair. And this werewolf is howling in pain, but also in rage. You know, man, as like, he rips. It's yeah. only 10, 10 feet away from him, too, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, man. So, yeah, this scene mm. brought everything. It brought the scariness. It brought the, you know, sort of the elation you felt at seeing Marty you know, escape, but also, you know, injuring this werewolf. And then that that is a plot point here because the werewolf can now be identified, mm-hmm. you know, because it would be someone with an, a missing eye. Now, Ryan, to get back to Monster Squad, if this was the werewolf from Monster Squad, <laughs> you would have shown up the next day with a completely new eye. <laughs> you know, yeah. that werewolf could pull himself together from <laughs> bits and pieces, you know. Yeah, if it's not and, a you know, simple, I, it doesn't hurt, yeah. 
exactly. <laughs> you know, I remember, you know, as a kid playing charades with some of uh, the, the parents from my friends. They were the, My family weren't into charades and stuff like that. But, you know, when I go visiting at friends' houses, you know, some of their families were. And we would play double charades sometimes. And two of my friends, they once, you know, mimed, you know, uh, a, a werewolf by... You know, when they got Monster Squad, you know, one friend kicked the other in the nards and then the <laughs> friend that was was kicked was like, oh, <laughs> so everybody was like, wait a minute. Yeah. Monster Squad. <laughs> you know, so that monster, his nards could heal itself. This monster, though, I'm pretty sure if he blew off Reverend Lowe's, you know, package, then they would have been it would have been more troublesome trying to find a werewolf the next day, <laughs> you know, but mm. The eye, you know, was what gave it away. And I think yeah. you know, that's a plot point in the book. It's a plot mm -hmm. point in the movie. It works because this werewolf cannot heal no. as a traditional werewolf can. It cannot die from an injury like this. I mean, Uncle Red is the one who points it out later that he should have died if he was a man from a rocket to the eye, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't. So he's supernaturally tough. And this is another point where I don't like the... I don't like the... Um, uh, I, I don't like the the uh, the narration, like the voiceover narration from Oler Janey and everything. Oh, that, the yeah. sense that like mm -hmm. that they know this is an important plot point that they they can identify, and that she actually goes around and like looking for people, and you're like waiting for this like dramatic moment and everything, of, like seeing like who's got two eyes and everything like that. I didn't like this turn. I thought it would have been way more suspenseful is if, you know, we have the scene where, like, he took the werewolf's eye out, and then we just, it's kind of left that, that is, and then Janie's going around collecting her canes and everything, and then she goes to the reverend, and then we see that he's got his eye covered up, and the first time she sees that, we could see her make the deduction in the head. Like, I don't even think she needed to go into the garage and see the bat and everything like that. I think it would have been just enough, the scary moment or whatever, of the first time she sees him in full view with the eye covered and it you you hear the the the, the alarm go off in her mind and mm -hmm. she's gotta she's gotta play it cool while he's like is something wrong like you know like he knows that something tipped her off i just think like there were there were ways that this that could have been a much more suspenseful and cool reveal um if it kind of was allowed to sneak up on you a little bit more um so now having said that again this was one of those things where like i just i remember watching it and knowing that i was like okay we're looking for somebody with one eye. i was like wait it's the reverend it's this holy man you know there's like the the pillar of the yeah. town the man of guys mm -hmm. like these aren't supposed to be bad guys these guys aren't supposed to be evil. like boy <laughs> if we could uh never mind i won't even go down that road but um <laughs> But yeah, just to, like me as a kid, like seeing that, like uh, that we... turn, that twist and reveal, I was like, this is so cool that he's going to be the bad guy, that he's the world. Like, how did it happen to him? Uh, which they don't really ever explain, but no. still. Yeah, um, no, they don't. I just, yeah, I, I love the, the reveal that, like, the shot when it moves and you, we see his full face and that one eye. But I was like, oh, they could have been more subtle about how they did that. And it just would have been a better reveal. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right on target there. I agree with everything you said. I do like how she comments that, you know, it sounds crazy, but, you know, she believes him because the next day he just sits in the front yard in his, you know, wheelchair and doesn't move and he's just staring off and she comes out and she's like, what's going on? And he, he lays into her and says, listen, this is what happened. And, you know, she actually is like, wow, holy crap. And she's like, I, I do believe him or I believe him 
that something happened. And I, I do like that, you know, another one of those good moments between a, a brother and sister there where, you know, they might be fighting the day before, but then something traumatic happens and they kind of come together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, um, I, I agree too with the fact that, that it should have been an accidental, you know, uh, uh, discovery on their part to see that you know this reverend has one eye not it shouldn't have been a planned you know like a hardy a boys kind Scooby of Doo um, moment. Yeah, Scooby or Doo Scooby-Doo moment. <laughs> moment where they set out to look for the person and then she comes up with this whole what uh, you know collecting re- recyclable bottles or something for the MedQ drive or whatever but you know there's one funny scene where she enters into the barbershop and that rabble rouser what's this called randy or i forgot his name andy randy whatever <laughs> you know the, oh the, the, andy the, fairton yeah and the, the, andy the, right the the gun the gun enthusiast guy that was yeah yeah i will point yeah. out mr tough guy he was the first person to actually run when they were in the woods and the werewolf started to attack all the other people yeah, are just you know <laughs> regular <laughs> joes stood there either out of fear or whatever but they did he was the first person mr tough guy to turn tail and run but anyway go ahead Herm. sorry <laughs> yeah no no you're right i should we should have mentioned that because mm-hmm. yeah he's, he's tough when his friends are around him you yeah. know and then but um yeah he's uh wrapped up in a warm towel right and yeah in the barbershop <laughs> and she just heads towards him and opens up the towel and says you got any cans or bottles no and then she wraps him up again and then he's like <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> yeah you can I tell like he's a bit pissed of humor. Off. Yeah, yeah because in a movie without a lot of humor you know that you, you sometimes need that to to break the ice but you're right that whole thing was contrived ryan you know and then when she eventually sees the reverend low uh that part is a little bit scary when she's you know offloading yes the bottles in the and then she discovers the peacemaker in the you know this mm-hmm. pile that she's fell into because she saw a mouse or something so that part's scary because he shows up and he's using that scary tone of voice that you know sermon like tenor that he has which is like jane are you well, yeah. feeling all right would you like was... to come in to lie down in the parlor what the yeah. hell it will you, and you figure she's yeah. in this garage like in a, a pretty enclosed space it's only him and her there that's really scary because literally even without being changed into a werewolf, if he was going to like accost her, what was she going to do to stop him? Probably not a whole heck of a lot. So that's scary and creepy on its own. Yeah, he wouldn't have turned because it was in the middle of the day. But we already know that he knows it's Marty because the way that when she approaches him and he's doing gardening, she mm-hmm. says, I've been having this fight with my little brother. He irritates me. And then he has this look on his face. Yeah, Jane, the little re- brothers reveal. sometimes do that. That's the reveal. And the fact that he says that also means that he knows Marty is the one who injured him, right? Mm-hmm. So when he does show up, you you sense there's some malevolent presence, you know, in the garage yeah. where he could have turned on her or kidnapped her or killed her then and there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then he also starts suspecting her because of her nervousness and her unwillingness to let him drive her home. You know, she he knows that she knows that Marty must have told her. Mm-hmm. And now they probably know it's him because she's seen his eye, you know, the, the mm-hmm. injury. Yeah, yeah they, and they start writing letters. Well, I, I shouldn't say that, not writing letters, you know, clipping you know, letters out of magazines and sending letters to him saying, oh, no, why don't you kill yourself? And, you know, basically trying to, like, you know, provoke him into doing something or maybe making some kind of a mistake or what. But. Um, I do like that they tell Uncle Red too, and he's like, "You two have lost your mind," you know. But then he eventually comes around when uh, you know we have that scene where you know he shows that he's got no problem even not being in werewolf form, trying to murder you know 
a, a kid that's, you know, in a wheelchair, which is disturbing as well. Yeah, Ryan, what do you think about this? This this speaks to the what you said earlier about a kid being in a wheelchair, being extra vulnerable. Now, yeah, you're vulnerable when you're on a bridge with a werewolf, but you're also when you're on the open road with mm. no other cars around and this crazy minister, this reverend, is chasing you down in his car intent of running you over. Because this is not just him wants to pull over Marty, no. you know, to, to, to threaten him. This is straight up murder. I He's mean, to he kill. tries to run him over, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I'm conflicted about this whole sequence because of the one. On the one hand, I like it. It shows that the this guy, if he's that desperate to protect himself and the secret and everything like that, then yes, we know the lengths he will go to, and that he can be just as dangerous, just as formidable, mm. in his desperation during the daytime. He doesn't have to change into a wolf to be a serious threat, especially to a child. But at the same time, it's also like okay. This, this, without intending this to be a joke or a play on words, we're getting way too much mileage out of this like hot rod racer wheelchair thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, this thing can like yeah. almost outrace a car. Like, this thing, like, it's like, okay, they, they, they had the budget for the scene, but they really wanted this to be like a, a guy driving, going, chasing a kid on a bicycle or a motorcycle or something like that. Cause it's like, yeah. it, we're kind of getting into the te- realm of the ridiculousness. Yeah. And into Mad that, Max territory here. Yeah. And that the kid, like <laughs> he keeps getting the bikes, the wheelchair stuck, but then he can move it just enough so that he doesn't get run over. And then, Oh, it's stuck yeah. again. In the nick and, of time. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the, the whole like he's trapped on the bridge with the priest there, otherwise oh, yeah. they're like coming after him, and then you hear the guy on a ride-on lawnmower, and oh, a tractor, uh, yeah, yeah, the ride, yeah, the tractor or something, and then Marty starts shouting for help or whatever, and then the guy like hears it, like the guy would never hear you in that. No, he's way bridge. too far away. Think, like if you're riding that tractor or something, <laughs> he's probably got. Earmuffs or earplugs or something like that covering him. Yeah, he would be too yeah, far away, and the Reverend would have been able to kill him. Like he certainly would have gone for it and like put it, his hand over his mouth, silenced him before. So that sort of narrow escape, I didn't buy. Um, yeah, that's you're right. They are, they, that's like four narrow escapes in a row in the span of five minutes, right, yeah. Ryan? If you mm-hmm. count all the times that he was avoiding the car narrowly, you know, yeah. while being perpendicular there on the road for a while. Yeah, and then. You know, running out of fuel all the time. Yeah, it's a little bit too, you know, on the nose. There too much. Uh, but you know, in in a king universe, I was just thinking about it. In a, in the larger king universe, this would have totally made sense because if you read books like The Dark Tower, there's this concept of Ka and the white. You know, the white being able to like take a hand and just. It happens in Salem's Lot too. At the end there, you know, when they're about to lose, when the you know trying to kill Barlow. And then suddenly this this power, this white power, just oh, sorry, I shouldn't say white power. That's horrible. I mean, this <laughs> this light, this just surges into Ben Mears. And then he he finds the strength to resist this hypnotic, you know, uh, you know, power of Barlow and just stake him. You know, this happens in the King universe. It's almost like a deus ex machina, which is very frustrating, you know, and, and this happened probably here, too. But, you know, as people watching the movie, this makes no sense. Like, how can he be this lucky? so many times in a row yeah yeah you're right it's a little bit i I like the scene because it's 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 scary but yeah this this is a little bit too uh you know artificial 
in terms of how it was constructed, you know. Plus this, mm -hmm. I'm getting tired of the silver bullet already too. It's a very 80s thing, you know, to put that in. Oh, yeah. I like the, the fact if he was just on his original, you know, motorized uh, wheelchair, it would have been enough, but, you know, whatever. Still, yeah, good points there from, from both of you guys. Mm, well, you guys mentioned, too, the scene right before this one where, you know, Marty's watching the other kids play baseball. Man, that's that's a heartbreaking scene there. You know, they really, that one's like, oh, man, that gets me every time, that scene. Oh. Yeah, and that almost um, makes me think that this is something Marty did frequently you know yeah. because uh, the reverend sort of tracks him down finds him at this baseball field now he could have been driving all around town looking for marty and the, the silver bullet that would have been easy enough in a small town but i think the reverend knew where marty hung out most of the time mm -hmm. you know hell he might have even given marty's family and marty some counseling in the past who knows yeah you it's know, possible um, yeah so well the film really kicks into high gear in this you know last act you know because after that happens then we see uh you know, uh, they go to Uncle Red again, you know, Marty and his sister Jane, and they're trying to, you know, convince him really like, hey, we're telling you. And the, the Reverend now try to run him off the road in the middle of the day. And they see there's a, a blue paint scrape on Marty's, you know, motorized wheelchair there. And they said, hey, the Reverend's car is blue. So then he actually goes to the sheriff, you know, and says, you know, hey, the, something's gone on here. And he's like, do you believe this a werewolf story? And he's like, well, I believe Reverend Lowe should be checked out at least. And you know, Sheriff Haller's like, oh, that can be arranged. And then, uh, you know, he goes to uh, check out the Reverend. And uh, I like that scene quite a bit, too. What do you guys think? Well, I'll let you go first, Ryan. Um, um, yeah, I think I've already mentioned everything that I've, uh, you know, I don't know if I have anything to say on that scene. But, yeah, Ryan, I'll let you go first. Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I like it. I mean, it's it's plays into the the cops finally getting a lead and actually acting on it for once so it's nice to see that i'm actually doing something but of course being that it is a horror movie that one of the staples of this of this you know one of the tropes is that the the authority figure must be killed in order to a sense that like this is a world without a natural order and that order must be preserved by the hero killing the monster um so yeah we have to have the cop killed and this is an interesting scene because now we see that the the reverend can change at will mm -hmm. um and is is this the only time we actually see the change occur I'm trying yeah. To... yeah yeah that yeah. is yeah, the, well, this yeah, is the big change count, moment we wouldn't count the changes in the in the dream sequence in the church yeah. so yeah kind of like i mean this calls into question how much I mean, how how much control does he have? Like, is this just like one of those things, sort of like in when he killed the the pregnant woman in the beginning? Like, does he just like he goes there and he forces the change so that he can kill in this particular instance? Mm -hmm. um, hmm. Yeah, no, I I tend to agree with that theory, right, Billy? Where it's yeah. like a forced change at this point in time because the moon is not completely full. We know this because of what happens later on when when he does, in fact on a full moon tries to kill, you know, Marty and his entire family. But this is definitely where, you know, he's confronted by the cop and about by the sheriff. And then at that very moment of change, he knocks the gun out of his hand while in the midst of his transformation with yeah. the baseball bat, with the peacemaker. So mm -hmm. he planned this. He probably saw the, the sheriff coming and then went into the garage and then, you know, that's where he was. That's where he was hiding out. And he had the peacemaker in his hand already. 
mm-hmm. uh, when he clubbed it, you know, the gun from the cop's hand. So, yeah, I think this is definitely uh, this supports the theory that he can force the change at at certain times. Probably not on the full moon, though. You know, that's when he sort of just lets himself go, and he can He probably has to change. But, but yeah, yeah, maybe other nights he's got more control than than is let on. You know, like probably one of the nights when, like you say, he murdered the suicide uh, lady. Or, you know, yeah, I I, th- I think I, I can ascribe to that theory. But mm-hmm. a brutal killing, wouldn't you guys say? I mean, the, the one blow with the bat on the head, you, oh. see, you see pieces of scalp sticking out and, and almost his brain is exposed there. And he's uh, lying on his back there and not yet dead. That was, <laughs> whoa, that was over the top. But, I oh, you know, as a horror fan, yeah, I enjoyed it. But, whoa. Yeah, that, that was nasty. <laughs> it's a nice, visceral, and gruesome image, but again, it's one of those things where I feel like they're they're kind of falling into this problem of like double mumbo jumbo. Because like, wait a minute, does he have to be a werewolf for this kill? Like, I mean, couldn't he have just killed the cop with a baseball bat? Like, I mean, I guess okay, the werewolf gives him an extra level of strength and savagery, but it's kind of like I when I when you turn into a werewolf, you know. Get your get your teeth and claws in the action, you know, and everything like, you know, go for the jugular, you know, like just beating him over the head with a bat. It's like I can see that in different kinds of movies. So, yeah, mm, yeah, good point. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. yeah, I I think he can control it, just about like you said, e- either all the time, Herm, or maybe just you know he has to change when it's like the full moon. But I think he's really he can change whenever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. I think he's a bit more devious than he lets on, but you know, and then like you said earlier too, King does play with, uh, you know, the fact that the Reverend, you know, he brings the religious aspect in it too. He kind of you know, thinks, uh, Oh, I'm doing God's work here. So, you know, in the mid eighties, you know, the, the, the satanic panic, was in full swing over here. And I think King was definitely playing with that. You know what I mean? I, I do like that. Cause you know, I went to a school for four years, you know, in elementary school where it was you know, like a parochial school. And it was like, if you, you know, anything and everything was turned into, oh, well, that's like, you know, bad or that's Satanism or whatever. And I, I think King, you know, he was, you know, very well aware of that and was playing with that. And of course, he always plays with, you know, religious tones in a lot of his books and the, the movies and stuff like that, too. What do you guys think? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think this is definitely, um, you know, many influences or many concerns of King, you know, sort of mm-hmm. bringing them together, especially like we, we said, it's a reverend as a werewolf. So that that's already, you know, uh, that brings to mind all of these things, you know, about how this holy thing can be unholy, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, that's more disturbing to some. Think about it like, um, you know, I would say not that not that we were, you know, Catholic or anything. But, you know, my family would have found it offensive if like a local filmmaker had a, a, a film about a, you know, a reverend or a minister mm-hmm. being some sort of, you know, horrific supernatural creature. Definitely they would have seen this as a slight or, you know, to the church or you know yeah. blasphemy. So, yeah, I mean, this is King definitely pushing those buttons. And, you know, he lived that life. He was from a religious upbringing mm-hmm. and um uh, some of his family members were more religious than others, but, yeah. you know, he lived with an aunt for a while there, along with his mom, you know, after the, the dad left them and so forth. She was very relig- religious. So, you know, a lot of that came uh, inspired characters like Mrs. White and so forth uh, from Carrie. So I think mm. uh, him playing with that, it's definitely a conscious 
decision on his part. It's not just a novelty sake. Oh, let's make this reverend for shock value. It's also just there to say that, you know, we shouldn't always trust these figures of ultimate authority, you know, mm -hmm. like and in some communities, a reverend has more authority than the mayor or, you know, at least in the minds of the people, you know, because he's yeah. got God's authority. Right. So this guy, <laughs> you know, he's got that <laughs> going for him, but he's also like twisting that, warping it into his own twisted mm -hmm. sense of morality here where he sort oh, of yeah. tries to make make it make sense the, these mm -hmm. murders and you know for that reason he wants to survive but it's also just pure survival you know he's just he's just afraid of dying i think as well and afraid yeah. of going to hell maybe since he's still religion religious he's got this theory in his mind that no he's not just doing god's work this is he's cursed this might be a subconscious thing but he's afraid of dying of going to hell mm -hmm. so that's why he's going to fight tooth and nail <laughs> you know yeah, literally could be. yeah yeah, for sure. Could be. Um, yeah. So then, like we said, it really it, it, it really moves fast. I feel like, you know, this last few scenes here. So, you know, Uncle Red, uh, they ask him to take a couple of like silver chains, necklaces that they have and take that silver and turn it into a silver bullet. And he takes it to this old guy and he, you know, makes one for him. And uh, I like the old guy's line, though, there when Uncle Red goes to pick up the bullet, he's like, oh, you know, this bullet ought to work really good. And Uncle Red's like, work really good for what? And the guy's like, you know, he's like, what are you going to shoot with with a, a 44 bullet or something like that? The old guy looks at him and goes, how about a werewolf? And Uncle Red's just like, whoa, <laughs> I like that scene. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, what do you think about that scene? It's sort of presented as almost like a mystical rite, you know, that 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 old man's an old world craftsman. I don't know if this is just Uncle Red's hyperbole for the kid's benefit, but yeah, what do you think of that, Ryan? <laughs> I like. I mean, when we when we talked about Midnight Mass on a different podcast, we kind of talked about like a lot of these horror movies and horror stories have to kind of exist in an alternate world where this horror isn't a genre. <laughs> like we talked mm -hmm. about, like Midnight Mass has to kind of function in a world where the people don't know what vampires are or like how, what some of these basic rules are. They they just don't automatically assume it. So I like that this kind of bucks that trend. It's like, yes, you're, you're asked somebody to make a silver bullet. It's like, why would you want a silver bullet? And the guy's like, well, I assume you're hunting a werewolf. That's the only other thing I've heard <laughs> of a silver bullet being used for. So mm -hmm. whether he believed it or he was just joking. But then again, if you lived in the small town where a freakish number of people have been killed in really grisly ways lately, mm -hmm. and somebody's like, hey, can I? Can you make me a silver bullet? It's like, yeah, it wouldn't take a whole lot of arm twisting to make me think, okay, something's up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like yeah, you know, no, yeah. yeah, you can you can play with that with small town America, and it definitely works. You know, in European settings too, obviously because you know they're more of a more inclined to. I don't know if I would say believe in that kind of stuff, but of course that's where all those origins came for to begin with. You know, the folklore and stuff like that. But uh, what do you think, Herm? Yeah, no, this is interesting because while I was researching the movie, I think it was a YouTuber, but I don't know who who did a review of the movie that I saw that mentioned this. He said that this. Um, you know, the idea of a silver bullet or silver object killing a werewolf, that's actually, it comes from an old myth, you know, the beast of Gévaudan, you know, this French story of this werewolf mm. that killed a farmer's family and then he melted down his silver cross and, uh, but he got the priest to bless the cross three times and that's what gave it the mystical power to kill the werewolf. But after that story became popular, I think it was in the 17th century, um, of course, it wasn't real. It was just, you know, based off of maybe 
people hunting a wolf or something that that might have killed a few locals. But you know, the story went like you know about this whole religious uh, power that that was imbued in this uh, bullet that took down or this musket ball or whatever that he made uh, from silver from a silver crucifix. So you know that was what started the whole. Um, myth or what did you say a, a bit of folklore that silver was the weakness of a werewolf yeah and mm-hmm. um, then yeah. it was used in 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 things like the wolfman you know with the silver-headed cane and and in in some fiction and in other movies so there was ne- it was never a thing it was it all came from this one central story but in this movie silver bullet they do the exact same thing that that farmer did in the story of Jevedon where he, I mean, they melt down Janie's cross, the silver cross, and and mm-hmm. Marty's medallion. Saint mm-hmm. Christopher, I don't know who it is. You know, I'm not m- much clued up on the Catholic saints, but you know, so that's so. It's also the kids being the silver bullet, not just Marty's ride being a silver bullet or the actual silver bullet being the object to kill a werewolf. The kids are the the main ingredient here. You know, they're the yeah, ones. Some sim- symbolism up. there. Yeah, they don't just offer up the information, the the data, the the the, the facts that you need to kill this werewolf. They also offer up the actual, um, you know, symbols and also the objects imbued with this mm-hmm. power. Now, the power of belief, yeah. but also the power of you know maybe <laughs> historical or uh, like you say folkloreisms, which in this case turned out to be true. Um, and the, you know that that becomes the power, the the weapon they need against this werewolf. It's a single bullet. You know, so, <laughs> you know, that in itself means, you know, Uncle Red was not completely sold on this. He just, it was like a placebo he was trying to give the kids, right? Mm-hmm. Saying he, he did not fully believe them. He he knew that the Reverend Lowe had tried to kill Marty because of the the evidence, you know, the, the scratch on Marty's bumper and, mm-hmm. um, or, or the scratch on Marty's wheel. And, you know, the fact that the cop disappeared after he went to him with this Reverend Lowe, uh, you know, accusation. Information. Yeah. yeah, but he still didn't believe it's a werewolf. This was just to, you know, alleviate the kids's, you know, fears here to sort of give them something to rally around and to show that he humors them where none of the other ad- adults would have. Um, and, and like you said in the beginning, uh, it was either Billy or Ryan, you, you mentioned this. He was still a kid at heart, right? So he was more than mm-hmm. willing to to humor them. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, this 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 was interesting. I came up with that, you know, recently when I saw something on YouTube and it it it, it makes it interesting. King did that purposefully, I think, the, the myth of Jevedon that he, he, you know, they melted down this cross. Mm-hmm. So yeah. interesting. And then, like you say, things just steamroll because um, they know that the reverence after Marty, he's going to come for them. They theorize that it's on the full moon because that's when he's at his most powerful and also when the beast takes complete control. So, Again, the reverend could say, oh, you know, it was out of my control. It was God directing events to square it with his conscience. Mm-hmm. So, and, and they turn out to be right. But let's speak. I mm-hmm. mean, it's literally five minutes. The last scene is five minutes mm-hmm. of werewolf violence. <laughs> so so <laughs> they're holed up at the house. What happens? There? Oh, first off, it seems that Uncle, Uncle Red is loaded because, you know, he's, he manages to, to build this this motorcycle for Marty with parts that he must have bought or, and then he also pays for a trip for Marty's parents <laughs> to New York city, which he said lies and says he wanted in publishers clearinghouse. 
Yeah, I didn't realize you could win trips with them. I know it was like, I thought you could win money with them, but yeah. And again, he's been through three divorces. You figure he's probably pretty broke at this point. Maybe he went to the bank and got a loan for them to go on this trip, but he had to think of a way to get them out of the house because, you know, he promised the kids and, you know, he knows something's up. But again, he's still not buying into the werewolf theory, but he knows something's up. And he thought, well, to humor the kids, I'll, I'll stay up with them and get the parents out of the house. Yeah. And then things start getting scary. I mean, Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, this is one thing I didn't like, the animatronic eyes that they put on the werewolf, because it shows up in the window. It showed up beneath the floorboards of the greenhouse earlier when, yeah. you know, uh, Marty's big... girl's dad was killed. Yeah. yeah, And then it also showed up on the bridge when we saw the full bear, bear wolf reveal. I don't like those animatronic <laughs> eyes swiveling in their sockets. It just it just takes away from the, the yeah. whole effect. Ryan, this is, again, the paw on the lattice you know moment that yeah. We discussed yeah yeah so ryan what do you think about this last scene of just you know the werewolf just throwing it all you know to the wind and just saying okay he's gonna go full out and just, just crash into this house and murder everybody it's it's cool it's nice they build the suspension you guys like they know that they're there um we know that the t- clock is ticking it's getting later the kids are falling asleep red is falling asleep and he's like you know get get them up there so there's a little bit of uh you know, suspense kind of building and everything. And then, the, you know, he he tempts fate by taking the bullet out of the gun. And then, and like, as soon as the power goes out, as soon as they cut the lights, they, the first line should have been put the bullet back in the gun. Like, <laughs> yeah. But he's so he's so stunned. And then, you know, the, the door crashes open and it comes in. And the worst part is, you're right, we get, like, five minutes of the kids struggling to get the bullet out of the vent, the red, you know, fighting to defend them, fighting for his life against the werewolf. But this thing, which has been able to kill seemingly at will. Now all of a sudden it's struggling with this guy and it's like throwing him around like a wrestler instead of (laughs) ripping his head off or doing it. It's, it's the least violent werewolf fight at the climax. So it's just kind of, it's like, yeah, they're building up the suspense and everything, but it just kind of comes off as eh, a little bit lackluster and disappointing, I think. Yeah, especially when you throw in just, you know, again, we see full on head to toe the, the werebear and it's like, well, you know, yeah, it doesn't it, like you said before, it almost looks like a guy. You can tell it's just like a guy in a costume. You know, it looks like a guy went to a costume store and bought like, you know, a grizzly bear suit and that's what he's wearing. So that, that didn't yeah. help. That didn't help matters. Yeah. If that would have been better, I think, you know, you could kind of overlook some of the other inconsistencies, but that, that drags it down for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you know, Dino DeLaurentiis, he was a very, you know, eccentric kind of guy. He couldn't speak a word of English and he always had a translator with him, you know, when mm-hmm. he only sp- spoke Italian, even though he was producing it in Hollywood for a number of years, but you know, an old ornery, kind of guy this i read in the don coscarelli book where don coscarelli had to deal with this this prick (laughs) Dino. (laughs) anyway so you know interesting that he dino had this idea and he wouldn't balk he he would this he wanted it his way he wanted to hire a dancer a male professional ballet dancer to be the werewolf because he wanted the werewolf to be lithe he wanted him to be agile he wanted to be streamlined in his movements and all of that so then Dino, you know, he got this dancer and then the biggest problem he had with the movie turned out to be the dancer who was <laughs> in the suit, not doing what Dino wanted him to do. But the reason was 
the suit, <laughs> you know, the suit took yeah. away all of this this dancer's you know ability Mobility. to to show his talent to to do what he was hired to do, and um and that's one of the reasons why Don Coscarelli also left because he had his own idea for for the werewolf suit that would have obviously solved this problem, mm-hmm. and yet Dino still wouldn't go for it. He insisted on getting this <laughs> dancing part right, which was ridiculous. So um. But you know, that's just an aside. I think what you guys are saying is true. Although we should mention, Billy, this is still better than the crashing through the window scene from The Beast Must Die, oh. where there's literally just a rug being thrown through a window. <laughs> <laughs> you expect that to be the werewolf. At yeah. least here, the werewolf has humanoid proportions, but still horrible. This is even worse than the bridge scene for me, because yeah. this werewolf is just, it was one of the worst werewolves on film. If you If you think about the time it was made, Right. And like Ryan, like you said, the fight is also, un, you know, it's ridiculous because he could lop off people's heads, heads with one swipe of a paw. Mm-hmm. He did that. He could tear people apart with his nails. Here, he opts not to use those natural weapons. He doesn't even bite. He just goes into full, what, World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, <laughs> like a pro wrestler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's, that is, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow, especially as you get older you know i mean like i said this came out in 85 i was 10 if i would have went to see this when i was 10 i would have thought this was you know pretty scary and i i I don't know that the the werewolf you know would have bothered me all that much um especially if i would have seen this before i would have seen some of those you know better you know american world in london and you know stuff like that but you know it it doesn't hold up as you get older you know, as far as the werewolf goes, you know, some of the other aspects of the movie, I think, hold up pretty well. I still like to watch it. But the, the werewolf, man, that's it's it's a very hard pill to swallow when you watch this movie, especially on those scenes. Like you said, the bridge scene, even the hand grabbing the lattice. And then, of course, this where it's just full on. You see the the, the bear suit. <laughs> yeah. Now, in an alternate universe, what is Marty Bullseye, the character Bullseye from the Daredevil comics? Because <laughs> ironically, he hits him with the one silver bullet they have in the other eye. <laughs> so both, both <laughs> yeah. eyes are gone. It's it's in, insane, but he does mm-hmm. it, and that's how he, you know, they they manage to to reload the gun at the last moment, which is also very very, you know, contrived. Right, Ryan, you mentioned that this whole fight is just unbelievable. It's just Marty's insane luck mm-hmm. again coming to the fore. That's why I'm I'm thinking this all ties into the Stephen King universe. It is firmly set in King's right. you know other verse which is, you know, because apparently the town of Tarker's Mills, it's it borders Derry and Chester's Mills, which is from under the dome, Derry of course being from it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um yeah, this this would make sense if it was in the King novel. It doesn't happen quite this way in the novelette, you know, but if King fleshed out the screenplay to be a full novel, then this would make sense for me because again, it's the sole concept of King's characters being the, like these eternal champions, Michael Moorcock-esque warriors against the, oh, the the greater darkness of the Crimson King, you know, and, and the werewolf just being one symptom of this greater cancer sort of infecting the Kingverse, right? But this is a movie and we're supposed to believe without knowing that King ties everything together, he, he will only do that in later years in any way, that these things just happen. <laughs> No, it's ridiculous. So yeah, this this werewolf should have torn them all apart, you know. Or or more believable, Uncle Red should have kept the bullet and the gun, and then gotten off a you know a lucky shot on his own. But yet it's not him. It's again Marty with the supernatural luck. Um, so yeah. Anyway, still a very fun movie. And that that last line from Janie sort of 
makes it worth it. Uh, you know, because she has a pretty good line. What does yeah. she say there at the end, Billy? Yeah, I mean, you you see after it's all over, you know, well, I love the joke at the end, too, by the way. You guys can speak on that as well. You know, we have this crazy, intense moment, and then, you know, Marty makes a joke there, too. And, you know, she's sitting there, and they're all together, and it's like the end scene, and then it kind of starts fading and pulling back a little bit. You hear the the narrator, you know, Jane's voice say that, you know, she loves her brother. You know, she can't, couldn't always say it, but she can say it now. And she says, I love you, Marty. And it's like, oh, boy, here we go with a tearjerker at the end. Like, don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't crying, though, because mm. nobody that I liked died. <laughs> really. In fact, the people I disliked the most died in this movie. If someone had that I liked had died, yeah, maybe I would. But, yeah. But, yeah, it did make me think a bit of my sister and I, you know, a little bit, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so... A uh, good ending, though. I liked it. What do you think, Ryan, of, of the, the wrap-up there? Uh, again, I it's a nice line, but I don't think it was necessary. I think all of the narration could have been cut from the movie. Um, my feeling, summarizing as a whole, I think the movie succeeds on the strength of a, a familiar but cool and kind of original and creative werewolf type of story. Um, with some unusual um, plot reveals and developments, fun, interesting, and likable main characters, uh, heroes that you root for, um, who were put in just horrific situations at times, um, and some interesting set pieces, um, but is is sometimes hampered by some over-the-top script issues and, and dialogue. Um, uh, ultimately, the werewolf costume really doesn't work very well. Um, a few little nitpicky things. But um, I, I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's a good story. It's a good movie that would have benefited from a few little tweaks to the script. And... I think maybe a stronger directing hand, um, whether it, the original director had stayed around for the whole thing or if mm, they had gotten mm. somebody a little bit older, a little bit more experienced with a little bit more of a visionary track yes. to, to take a, tackle the thing from the beginning. I think this could have been a lasting and enduring classic that still holds up as it is. I think the movie is just fine for its era with some some parts that are really really good but overall better than average not great mm -hmm. right right agreed i think um it does two things really well i'm, I'm gonna give it probably a little bit of a higher rating than you guys because it's a sentimental favorite but all of the points you made are spot on there's something that keeps it from being great yeah and uh, you've hit on why. But two things that are standouts to me about this film is the fact that it's sort of a mystery movie as well. You know, your uh, werewolf movies are not normally like that. You kind of see who's the werewolf or the story is built around the werewolf from the beginning in most werewolf movies. Mm -hmm. uh, here, you don't know who the werewolf is until much later in what, almost the third act. Yeah. And or, or yeah, if you're very sharp, you can probably spot it at the end of the first act. But you know, um, so that's a mystery. It's a mystery reveal. And then uh, another unique point um, or, uh, you know, that this movie offers is the protagonist being, you know, a kid in a wheelchair and mm -hmm. him, you know, surviving and getting the better of this monster. 
showing that kid, kids all over the world, you know, you don't have to be scared of monsters. You can take them on, you know, I mean, if this kid in a wheelchair can do it, he's resourceful enough to do that. So, you know, the fact that this was a great performance for Corey Heim, and of course he gave us one of my favorite horror villains, my namesake, Reverend Lowe, you know, um, this this movie <laughs> is a sentimental favorite of mine. So, but it's definitely, you know, objectively speaking, it's not great. But subjectively speaking, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's if, it's, if it's a movie yeah. anybody listening in hasn't seen, I mean, well, hopefully you didn't listen to this before you saw it because you'll get spoiled. But, you know, definitely give it a look. It's 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 worth a watch for sure, even if, you know, it's just a one-time watch. It's definitely worth that for sure, I think. Yeah, so... Yeah, great, great uh, discussion we had about the movie, mm-hmm. but we still have to get to the, the, the novelette. I think we can do this in a, just a couple of minutes, Ryan. What do you think? Yeah, Talk yeah, about- yeah. Whatever you guys want to add on to there, just even any stark differences uh, about the novelette compared to the well, movie. Well, yeah, the, the kind of the biggest thing is is the, the sort of conception of this. Um, and as I understand it, this was this collaboration between Bernie Wrightson and Stephen King was this was supposed to be a 12 month calendar mm-hmm. with yeah. Bernie Wrightson's werewolf illustrations wow. for he's got these like big art pieces of werewolves for each month of the calendar. And then there was going to be a little write up, like a little paragraph or a little vignette, some short little story written by King to go along with this calendar. And then the more King worked on it, it was just like, this this isn't working. Or I'm like, it's hard to do like 12 different isolated little weird werewolf things that aren't like, like, you know, repeating each other and tripping over each other. And, this is going to be on a calendar. How are we marketing this? The, the whole thing kind of just like the more they sat on this thing and worked on it. They were like, this is kind of dumb. We're not going to do this as a calendar, but King had these little vignettes and these little, like little nuggets that he just sort of fleshed them out. So it became this novella or novelette based on a 12 month cycle. Uh, and it's, it's actually, it's not called silver bullet. The book is called cycle of the werewolf. And each chapter, it's 12 chapters, each chapter is a month with the werewolf attacking that particular month. But he takes a ton of liberties, like with, like to try and like, it's almost like the Batman Long Halloween, where like he ties each month to kind of like a holiday, but like there's no year where uh, there's a full moon on Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like weird, but <laughs> like, we'll, we'll kind of like, Billy kind of like mentioned it, like, in the beginning, the first couple of chapters, it's all very one little isolated incident of a guy being in a mm-hmm. cabin in the woods during a winter, during a snowstorm in January and killed by a werewolf. And then Valentine's Day in February, a woman like longing for her lover or whatever is killed by it. And it's sort of like the pregnant woman in the movie. But the whole thing is like each one of these chapters is a different isolated thing. We don't meet the kid in the wheelchair, this Marty kid until July. It's the 4th of July chapter. So it's like the seventh out of 12 chapters that we meet this kid. And we only meet him for this thing where he's in his backyard playing with fireworks and the werewolf comes out of his doghouse and he throws a firecracker at it, the thing and it explodes in the werewolf's eye. And that's how the kid manages to survive. Mm, we yeah. don't see, mm. we don't see this kid again until chapter 10 with October when he's out trick or treating and he happens to go to the house of this 
reverend guy and he opens the door and he's got an eye patch and it's like oh the kid realizes that he must be the werewolf because he lost his eye that same time and then we don't see him mm-hmm. again until december when he kills him on christmas so it's like it it is really weird the way it's structured because it's not it doesn't have one long narrative thing it's it's just a bunch of different little chapters with a few things that creep up and come back to each other to kind of, but it's structurally, it's just weird and, and different and would not work as a movie unless you took a lot of liberties and a lot of heavy things. And that's why it is cool that King adapted it himself um, because he basically just took like little kernels and little bits from four or five of the chapters and then strung them together and and that's why we said he kind of created a lot of these characters whole cloth and built them up and made them kind of like more interesting for the movie because really it's it it was bare bones what he had to work with from his own work his own source material but he really kind of just changed it and built it into something cooler for the movie so i mean i I would actually say the movie is better than the book, better than the source material. If you're just looking at the prose and the text, mm, but agreed. the real selling point, the reason I think <laughs> Herman King's and name I have this in our collection <laughs> is because yeah. of Bernie Wrightson. Um, oh yeah. The art, yeah. Is, the art is delicious. Sorry. That's what you meant. Yeah. The selling point for mm. us is definitely Bernie Wrightson, but you know, the selling point for the folks that, so Weezer Publishing, right, was, you know, Stephen King's name on the calendar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you think, the thing is here, what I love about this, um, you know, illustrated novel is the fact that there are color illustrations and there's black and white. So, you know, Bernie writes and brings it in both, but the black and white is, is, is the way I sort of sometimes like to see them. But you get both in this novel. So the color illustrations are there to illustrate what happens in the story. And then the black and white illustrations are there to show the changing of the seasons, you know, or the months uh, flowing from one into the next. And you get both of that. So that's double Bernie rights and goodness there. And then uh, you get the discrepancies in the story. Like, you know, Ryan says, it's just basically individual mur- murders from month to month. Um, but I want to read this part of Brady's murder. This is the one we didn't see on film. Now, Stephen King gets really graphic with his description of Brady, Brady's murder here. There's no way they could have filmed this. So the discrepancies are not just in, you know, the murders, but also in how the murders occur, right? So listen to this, right? Uh, Brady runs, oh, Brady turns to run and dry arms suddenly encircle him. He can smell something like blood and cinnamon, and he is found the next day propped against the war memorial, headless and disemboweled. The vulture kite in one stiffening hand. Holy crap. Jesus. Jesus. I mean, <laughs> oh, wow. King, what the hell? You know, okay, this makes sense if you read it much later on with the child murders or the child murder in, uh, you know, the dead zone that we mentioned earlier. But damn, this is graphic. You know, so there are good things to like about the prose if you're only in it for gratuitous, you know, horror. But yeah, King didn't tie it together like he does in most of his stories. In fact, I'd go so far as to say this entire book is morally completely ambivalent. You know, his novels are not like that at all, the rest of his his work. But, you know, the Bernie Wrights and stuff, like, like Ryan says, is amazing. And, you know, the fact that, you know, how they got together was because of this this book and not Creepshow. You know, that so Creepshow is, is you know, what happened during mm. the interim while you know, Zawisa Publishing and New American Library were sort of feuding because 
New American Library had the rights to publish King's Year of Fear calendars. So this would be a, a, a kind of a Year of Fear calendar as well, only werewolf-centric, and New American Library did not want to allow that. So they had to come to this agreement with Suiza Publishing, which is this small publisher that Bernie Wrightson used to to work for. I mean, they did a couple of, um, I think, Alex Nino's Satan's Tears, and then Ber Bernie writes a writes in retrospective called uh, Look Back, right? So Bernie was affiliated with with this publishing house, and then they saw the the, the publisher saw King at a World Fantasy Convention in 1979, and he just said, "Okay, I'm going to try my luck. I'm going to approach this guy because Stephen King was already big in 1979, right?" And then somehow he got King to agree. Now, if you read an interview with King. The reason why he agreed to this, which was would not really have been commercially successful for him, because he knew it would be a small print run. I mean, the publisher mentioned that right off the get-go. The reason King agreed to this, because at that World Fantasy Convention, he was in the presence of people like Frank Belknap Long and Fritz Lieber and Robert Blow, you know, who's, or Robert Block, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but the writer of Psycho, you know, the guy who came up from Weird Tales with H.P. Lovecraft and them. And they were all in financial dire straits, those guys. So even Robert Block, the guy who wrote Psychos, the screenplay for Psycho, was not doing well financially. And Stephen King felt guilty because, after all, these were the guys who, who laid the groundwork for modern horror that he thrived in, that he thrived on. And now they were suffering, and he was a millionaire already at this point in time. I mean, Frank Belknap Long apparently didn't even have the money to pay for a plane ticket to fly out to the... World Fantasy Convention, he had to take like a Greyhound bus or something. So because wow. of that, King felt bad. So he agreed to this small indie publisher, you know, um, you know, out of guilt, a sense of guilt. He wanted to, you know, help out the little guy. And this publisher was struggling and Bernie Wrightson, and he knew of Bernie Wrightson, of course, but back then Bernie Wrightson wasn't financially secure at all. That would only happen later when conventions became a thing with commissions and stuff and his art started selling for big bucks, but, you know, and his original art could be sold. But Back then, yeah, King really wanted to help them out. So he agreed, and then he met Bernie Wrightson later on. But apparently Bernie's plane was late in meeting King. Um, also at a book convention, but, you know, because the late plane, they only had like half an hour together. And during that time, King said he wants to work with Bernie on other things as well. And that's how Creepshow came to be. So it took Bernie two years to illustrate, two and a half years, to illustrate these, um, you know, uh, Cycle of the Werewolf images. And during that time, they also collaborated on Creepshow because at some points in time, they were waiting for the decision to be finalized between Zuiza Publishing and New Line Library. So they eventually, you know, because of King also saying that he can't just do a calendar, his his characters have now, you know, run mad and, you know, 500 words per vignette is just too little. They decided, you know, on doing the, the full book. And then apparently Bernie's illustrations took off. Uh, and it was a 114-page book, right, with the original print run of just 7,500 copies. But there were 100 copies with original werewolf drawings in that obviously sold for more. And Bernie Wrightson had to draw 100 werewolves in addition to each of these 100 copies, you know. Uh, and he would have to wow. illustrate them over. And he said after just doing 12 of them, it felt like he was Sisyphus. It was like a living hell, you know, where he had to do this this gargantuan task of drawing the same werewolf a hundred times in a hundred of these special deluxe copies. <laughs> so it's insane, poor Bernie. But wow, he managed, he did it. Yeah, it's crazy, he did it. And then, of course, after 
the 7,500 copies sold out, then the publishing rights reverted to New Line, uh, sorry, New uh, American Library. Um, and that's where, why they were happy, why the deal was eventually made, because then ever since then it's been in print and they've been reaping the rewards off of that. So it's got an interesting bit of history to it. But like Ryan says, it's all about Bernie Wrightson. You know, there's hardly any king, mm -hmm. um, you know, that you could recognize in there if you if you read his other novels. The illustrations yeah, because like, are, like, like yeah, chapter, even like the chapters, it's not like each month is a short story because even a short story has a structure with characters and plot development and, and beginning, middle and end. The, some of them are really literally just a scene, a sequence, like a like a fragment. Um, yeah. And so it's yeah, it's it's hard to really compare it to anything like that's why the narrative structure is so weird. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, the depth of the that's cup. That's also is... why I kind of credit. I was like, the the movie is a better story. It, it's it's yeah. weird. Wouldn't normally think that, especially with given Stephen King. But yeah, the movie's a better story than the actual source material. But the source material has the Bernie Wrights and art, which is mm, magnifique. Chef's kiss. Mm. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, I, I regret having the smaller edition. You know, apparently the original edition was much lar larger. It was nine by 11 inch inches. I have the smaller version, which I've had since the 80s. I think it was the second or third edition of the, the book. And it's much, you know, it's like uh, smaller than a comic book, a regular size comic book. So I think if you had the bigger edition, Bernie's, right, uh, Bernie's art would have been even more, you know, eye popping. Uh, unfortunately, my edition's a little bit faded. Maybe I should invest in the new one. I see they recently, like two years ago, they they had a newer edition coming out. So, uh, Billy, you should get your hands on that, man, because like Ryan says, you can just gush over the art and black and white art too. In yeah. There, you know that. Oh, it's it's it's. I mean, you could look up images on the web just now. I think you could find all of them there. Yeah. I've Ooh, seen some uh, of the images and they look fantastic. And I think I did just look before too on Amazon. You can get a, a, an issue or I shouldn't say an issue, a copy for like maybe 15 bucks. So that's not yeah. bad. Yeah. And that's why I hate the fact that nowadays people associate Jay Lee with Stephen King, you know, because Jay Lee did some covers and he also did the Dark Tower comics. And, uh, you know, he's the artist now associated with Stephen King. I want Bernie Wrightson's name to be synonymous with King when there's art mentioned all the time. Because after all, Bernie went oh, on yeah. to illustrate not just Creepshow and Cycle of the Werewolf. He did the the Stand, the illustrated edition of the Stand in 1990 uh, or 1991, and then you know that was a tour de force as well. That was incredible. So mm. unfortunately, you know that that didn't happen. I think Bernie could have reaped more financial rewards being associated with King. They didn't even say based off of the novel by Stephen King and Bernie Wrightson in the credits of Cycle of, of Silver Bullet. You know, I, I couldn't even see Bernie Wrightson's wow. name mentioned, probably in the credits much, much later. But for me, it should have been a complete collaboration. Yeah. You know, 50-50, but it, the, the Silver Bullet movie sort of makes me think that, no, Bernie didn't get much from that movie at all, uh, no. which is sad. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah. I didn't know the details of that. So, unfortunately, yeah. But a great, a fantastic source material that generated one of my favorite childhood horror films so overall yeah awesome Winner. so any final thoughts you guys nope that's it for me what about you ryan uh thanks for suggesting this i did have fun watching the movie again for the first time in a long time uh, i had wanted to kind of get back there 
there's a couple of werewolf movies that I do want to get back to. So I need to see Wolfen again. I haven't seen mm. that. Oh, yeah. yes, that's oh, a good yeah. one. Yep. But, so, yeah, that's a real but, good one. Yeah, this was no, this was fun. Okay, so uh, if anybody wants to uh, check you guys out, Ryan, uh, where can they look for you? The Fire and Water Podcast Network uh, is a home to myself and several other very talented podcasters uh, covering lots of things in geek culture from comic books, regular books, uh, sci-fi films, cartoons. Uh, You can find me as the host of Cheerscast, where I do an index show based on my favorite TV sitcom of all time, Cheers. And I've got a lot of other podcasts there in various states of hiatus or dormancy or they were already done. Um, Midnight, the podcasting hour, Fire and Water Records, Batman Nightcast, give me those stories, a few other things. Um, but yeah, the one that I am current with is uh, Cheerscast. So find me on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Awesome. I can't and believe then... you didn't mention the the uh, Secret Origins. <laughs> it's almost as if you want to forget. I know, that's, about... the, that's, that's arguably the best one, but it's... Wow, mm. that was an epic podcast run completed an entire series so billy and i have yet to do that <laughs> so yeah mm. lots of ryan daily goodness on the fire and water network mm-hmm. but and yeah, of course us, yeah yeah you're on twitter at, at ryan daily zero one mm. correct ryan yeah but don't follow me on twitter that's not... <laughs> <laughs> give me, no, me some place to lay low <laughs> <laughs> that's great from those, uh, <laughs> those angry midnight the podcasting hour fans who are now not getting there you know, their fix. <laughs> mm-hmm. Their PJ mm-hmm. Prideful fix, yeah. No, at least I know where to stalk you, Ryan. And harass mm-hmm. you. Probably with mm-hmm. letters in the mail saying, I know who you are. I know what you did. Why did you kill, I be, why did you kill PJ Prideful? <laughs> well, you didn't really kill him. <laughs> he killed you. <laughs> so, no. Her. As for us, we're on at Into Weird on Twitter. And you can listen to our Into the Weird podcast where we cover cover Bronze Age Marvel. Right, Billy? And mm-hmm. I'm at Dark Longbox. And I run the Longbox of Darkness with sporadic shows. And, yeah, that's it for us. And we can also check out, if you're of the mind, to to run away from horror a bit, our a World on Fire podcast and Star Rocket Radio, which chronicles the All-Star Squadron comics from the 80s and the Infinity Inc. series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's me. Mm-hmm. All right. So, well, thank you guys uh, tremendously. This was a lot of fun. Uh, you love talking movies and especially you two guys. This was great. You know, we did the Dark Knight of the Scarecrow before Halloween together. Now this one. So this was a blast. I really enjoyed having you guys on here. So, again, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be back in just a second here to wrap things up. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan. How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. (laughs) That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheers Cast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. 
coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. up this episode uh, once again i'd like to thank ryan and herm for joining me you know two great guests uh, two good guys check out the show notes for everything they have going on and uh, definitely give those guys a follow on twitter and a listen to their podcasts uh, uh, take care catch you next time